Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact Chapter 51 Buxton had never seen a Terran before four days ago. To be perfectly honest, he'd never seen anything like a Terran before. Now he wished he'd never seen one, and was grateful that they were here. Four days earlier, the beeping woke Buxton from where he was sleeping between his wife and the two brood carriers. He frowned a moment, trying to figure out what the beeping was. It took him a moment. He was still sleepy, his brain fogged by exhaustion of working at the Corpsec building cleaning things. One of the brood carriers, her fur silky soft and her body warm, made a murmuring noise and turned over. He could see it, the comlink. He wasn't important enough to rate an implant, so he had a hand-carried flip-open comlink that only did voice and text. He ran a motorized buffer, buffing the hallways the overseers used to hide shine. Robots were reserved for the out-of-the-way places, and he privately suspected it was because how the overseers enjoyed the fact that he had to stand to the side and look down as they passed where a robot just beeped at them until they moved. He was below a robot in ranking. Video was expensive and only reserved for those with a much higher ranking than he was. He opened up the comlink, display bright in the dark nesting room. On the screen was a single line of text. Report will work immediately. Sighing, he got up and moved to the clothing dispenser, printing out a paper jumpsuit with his name and corporate number on the back, as well as a pair of paper shoes and a pair of paper gloves. He was careful not to tear it. It cost an hour's pay, got dressed and left. He took public transport and noticed that every being on the grimy and creaking hoverboards was a corpsec jumpsuits. Everyone was yawning, rubbing their eyes, scrubbing their fur, stretching, whatever their species used to signify their tiredness. The hover bus was lit up and everyone looked around the faint thrumming roar made the public transport vehicle vibrate. Buxton looked out the window with them, curious at what would be landing so far from the port. It was an ugly, all black, only visible because the Scorpsec hover craft around it, shining lights on it. It was black, jagged-looking, with no lights and other signifiers. It moved steadily, and Vuxton realized in a shock that it was setting down in the Corpsec parking lot. As he and everyone else in the bus watched landing gear deployed, crashing executive limousines underneath it, setting down with a long thrum. Overseers aren't going to be happy about that, a frestler with the name of Dutra on her jumpsuit said, her voice squeaky. Who would dare do such a thing? A winged, featherless, due to corpsec regulations, Avian asked. Their species name was all clicks and chirps, most of them out of the Tulkan hearing of speech range, but Vuxton had taken to calling her a key kicks. Someone more powerful, more important. Someone else guessed. The hover craft still was circling. The time that Vuxton remembered putting down a food riot in one of the richer quarters a year or so before. They were armed, fast and capable of reducing an entire crowd to twitching nerve-stunned screams in a single pass. 
He'd cleaned the cells of those beings that had been put in. They'd been fined a week's pay, none of which went to paying for the six sets of jumpsuits he'd gone through. They fly like they are nervous chicks, Akik said, clacking her beak. Now that she mentioned it, Vuxton could see it. Everyone's phones beeped and they all flipped open at the same time and looked at them. Report to ship supervisors immediately. Vuxton sighed, leaning back in his seat and waiting. The harbor bus wandering through its route and eventually arriving at the Minial's gates. He got out, got in an orderly line and waited to go through the security gate. At the gate, they took his apartment keycard, his ID card, his phone and gave him back an access card and a foldable paper phone. He filed in, walking through the grey halls, his feet whispering on the cool glass floor, the lights dim, going to the meeting, lunch, assembly, relaxation lounge with the others who worked in his section. There was close to a hundred beings in the room and Vuxton realized that every shift had been called in. The Langtelan overseer trotted in, his hooves clacking on the plaz. He stood at the front and called out, each being's name, marking that they were there on his datapad. He looked them over for a long time and then made a motion. Another Langtelan came into the room. This one was dressed in the black segmented sack armor, its eyes, nose and jowls hidden by a helmet of war. Corpsec was written on the chest and the flanks in six different languages, including Unified Civilized Systems Standard. Three others came in after him, all dressed the same. If I call your name, go stand to the side of the room and wait silently, it said. Buxton was one of the last ones called. The Langtelan just had him and the other thirty beings wait until he left. Then they were told to follow him. They followed him down the stairs, through a corridor and made of opaque plastic sheeting that Vuxton could tell by the smells and plasticrete was an underground parking garage. More hallways, these brightly lit with metal walls, metal ceiling and the floors. They passed interrogation rooms and Vuxton knew that the others were feeling as nervous as he was. They had all cleaned up blood, hair, teeth, scales, nails from those rooms. Finally, they got to the big room and were told to stand in line. Another Langtelan trotted in, followed by an automated trolley with black suits and helmets on it in all different types. The Langtelan went down the line of beings handing them proper suits and helmets. Vuxton noted that the armor all said Corpsec on the front and back with the same word on the back of the helmet. After that was boots and gloves. Put that on, the first one said. Take off your jumpsuits and fold them carefully. Take off your shoes and gloves. They all struggled into their suits, some needing help, until they all stood in a slightly shiny armor. Helmets on their head, heavy boots and thick gloves on their hands and feet. The next trolley had beat sticks, radios, cuffs and belts. They were told to put on the belts, but not to touch anything on them. Follow, the original Langtelan said, motioning to them. They all obediently followed, afraid to displease but confused. They were just janitors, menials, not corpsec. They didn't understand why they were dressed in armor. They filed out of the long hallway that was open on one side, a chest high on the Langtelan wall with a flat space set into things. Beyond the wall was a long open space with holograms of various kinds of beings. Each being was told to stand in one of the cubicles. Another Langtelan came by, handing Vuxton a heavy black rifle that he was told to put on the flat space. Then a black pistol and then two boxes. Vuxton did exactly as he was told. No more, no less.
His knees were shaking. Langtelan's all heavy and black sack armor moved up and stood behind each worker. At the sound of a whistle, they stepped forward. Pick up the rifle, the Langtelan behind Vuxton ordered. Vuxton did as he was told, picking it up. He fumbled it, and the Langtelan having to explain twice how to hold it. The first time he held it upside down, the second time he had it in the wrong place against his chest instead of his shoulder. He was instructed how to put the boxes into the bottom of the rifle, in and out several times before leaving it in. He was told to press the white button on the side. The rifle gave a slight twitch when there was a clacking humming of a solenoid-driven capacitor. Buxton didn't drop it, but others did. To Buxton's surprise, there was no yelling, no screaming of pain, no jaw-jiggling spittle-filled sights. He could tell the Langtelan was getting irritated by how he kept putting his hands on his heavy iron pistol. He tried extra hard to follow the directions. Leaning against the flat surface, he put his elbows on it, looking through the lens he pointed the weapon at the holographic figure, pressing the red button on the side of the rifle. The rifle chirped and the ruined full lock appeared on the lens. Press the red lever, the Langtelan behind him said, sounding slightly nervous. The rifle kicked hard, a sharp crack sounding out, something inside the helmet clamped painfully over his ears, muffling the sound. The number three appeared above his target. Keep doing that, one trigger pull every time you count to ten, the Langtelan said. The overseer's voice was clear. Everyone was firing, spacing the shots out. Buxton was nervous. He couldn't see any reason to do this. The lens suddenly read empty, and the pulling the little lever on the hand grip didn't work. Little by little, everyone else stopped firing. Take that empty, stand aside against the wall, hold the weapon as instructed, the Langtelan told Vuxton. Vuxton did as he was told, holding the rifle with the barrel up on his left shoulder and the bottom of his rifle in his right hip. Then stand straight, all of you, the Langtelan said, or I'll send you all to mucking out the landfill. Everyone stood up straight, Buxton yawning inside the helmet, knowing nobody could see him. At least the helmet had stopped pinching his ears. Long minutes passed before the door at the end opened up as one of the overseers came back. As you can see, my men are trained and ready to defend the city, the Langtelan said. Next to him was something that Buxton had never seen before. And he'd seen all the various species on the planet, cleaned up all of their bodily fluids and tissues. This one was new and dangerous looking. It was tall and slightly taller than a Langtelan. Wide shoulders, thick arms and legs, and a neck as thick as a being's arms. It was bipedal, shaved hair on the top, on the head. A heavy-looking jaw, mechanical eyes, big ears, big nose. Vuxton could see a complex implant on the being's temple. It had an omni-translator on its ear and walked down the line. It was dressed in two-piece gray and white pattern of smaller, irregular blocks that seemed to shift and blur into the wall's appearance. His boots were black and he had black gloves missing the fingers. Other overseers came out in their armor, their helmets off, their tendrils with tight with worry or fear. They are, huh? he asked. The human stopped in front of Vuxton and looked over all the beings against the wall. All right, he reached. Your rifle trooper, let me see it. Buxton looked up at the overseer, who nodded, and he handed it to the strange biped, almost dropping it. The biped looked at it. Magnetic accelerator rifle, 4mm bore. The human hefted it in one hand. 
A little on the heavy side, multi-optic, hmm? The human held it back to Buxton, who took it clumsily. Serviceable. You should watch them practice targeting, Overseer said. Men, take your places. Buxton and the others moved back up, putting their elbows on the flat surface. Load one magazine, the Overseer sedated. Buxton was proud of himself. He didn't drop anything and got it loaded. The ruin for thirty popping up on the corner of his round flip-up screen. Engage your lane's targets, the overseer commanded. Buxton figured that the overseer meant to shoot, so he shot, counting the ten between shots. When he was done with the magazine, there was a yellow temperature ruin on the corner of the lens. Unload your weapon, step back to the wall in the correct position, the overseer stated. Buxton followed instructions. As you can see, my men are highly proficient with their weapons, the overseer said. Mm-hmm, the bright pit said. It sounded like uncertainty to Buxton. 100% accuracy. Not bad, not bad, not bad. It's perfect, the overseer said. My men do not miss. I see, the biped said. It reached into its pockets, taking out a small tube. The human twisted one end, making the other end flash, and he threw it halfway down the long room, between the holograms and the shooting booths. Do it again, the biped said. I must object, the overseer said. Objection logged and recorded. Do again, the biped said. The overseer's tendrils curled up and his jaw shook. He motioned at Vuxton and the others. Men, take your spaces. Vuxton did so. Load one magazine. This time the pop-up screen was different. It kept flashing an error rune. He could see the hologram. It kept jumping around like before, but rather the rune for locked was missing, just flashing error over and over. Engage your lane targets, the overseer commanded. This time the shots took longer, were more spaced out and more uncertain. Eventually, the last trigger was pulled and the room went silent. Buxton breathed a sigh of relief when the helmet let go of his ears. Unload your weapon, step back to the wall in the correct position. The overseer's voice sounded nervous to Buxton. Hmm, eleven hits total, overseer. I'm disappointed, the biped said. You did something with the tube, human, the overseer said. It's a standard personal electronic warfare device, the biped said, looking down at Vuxton as if he could see through the macroplastic face shield. Could your men, the overseer started to say. Clear the range, the human stated, turning and stepping forward into Vuxton's booth. Its hands went to the waist and he pulled out a heavy-looking black pistol. The human pointed the barrel straight up and bending his elbow at an incredible distance into the inside of his angle. Disengage smart link. One of the overseers fumbled with a box, finally looking up. Rage is reset, human. Set for variable distance moving pop-up targets, the human said. The overseer with the box looked doubtful but made the adjustments. Call it, the human said. Um, the overseer said. The pistol was leveled, firing rapidly. The slide kept running back, ejecting vapor. The human moved its hand back and forth, firing until suddenly the stud of magazine popped out the bottom before... It even hit the ground. The human had slapped a new one in and resumed firing. Five magazines. The human kept switching between targets. Each pull of the trigger, a bright silver actinic line connecting the barrel with the hologram. Buxton could see the plescrete puffing out in craters as big as his head and the building when some kind of energy screen flashed in sparks in the fifth shot. Finally, it ejected the fifth magazine into its hand, tilting the pistol to check the inside before setting it on the desk. 
He bent down and picked up the four magazines on the floor, then stood up, placing the magazines next to the pistol. Score, range master, the human said. 80A5, out of 75 shots across 25 targets, the overseer stated. Keep the lanes clear, the human said. I put the pistol back in the holster and went the magazines upside down in his magazine pouches. The human lifted the flat surface and walked through, walking down the little cylinder and picking it up. It twisted the end and the light stopped blinking. He walked back, setting a tabletop down and then moving over to the overseers. You were saying? The human asked. You have a cybernetic eyes, the overseer stated. It doesn't count. The human lifted his shoulder and let them fall. If you insist, overseer, he, if it was a he, turned and looked at the gathered up janitorial staff against the wall. We have days at most until the precursor arrive, overseer, he said. I suggest you train your men. My men are highly trained, the overseer stated. By your standards, the human said and left. Buxton had thought that he'd seen the last of the human. He was wrong. Vcor, old metal memo. Ensure all planetary military, defense, military, and other armed organizations, including corporation security, are prepared to resist precursor incursion with local weaponry. Port any defects to Vcor Tradoc OIC. Nothing follows. To Vcor Tradoc from SVS Ulganga, Maynard Kikit, Turconmul, Army, Old Metal. Local, planetary corporate security is poorly trained and armed for defense against precursor military types as well as precursor resource extraction reclamation standard types. Forces use magnetic auto-aim systems to an over-reliance. Local, mag auto-aim targeting system able to be jammed by personal privacy device, suggesting poor EW shielding. We'll try to cooperate with local planetary corporate security leaders, overseers, in an attempt to increase training and skill. Nothing follows. Customer Industrial Extraction Refining Manufacturing Corporation Memo All customer corporate security personnel of the third grade overseer and higher shall prepare the attached listed names to help defend Shermanan from the supposed precursor attack. We shall show these Terrans that the customer corporation does not need to rely on some foreign government who seems to employ only predators for their military. The old metal should be shown who is dominant military and security in this galactic arm. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 52 Rack and pinion each weighed over two standard tons, more steel frames and armor, flex steel muscles and small creation engines, onboard weapons and 0.5mm laser to a 1.4m long monomolecular vibroblade to a 10mm caseless ramjet ring penetrators, two variable frequency 4cm laser, to a 40mm autocannon, to micro-missiles, all with mission-configurable ammunition. They were strong enough to stop any armored vehicles that the Unified Military Council might throw at their charge. Their micro-missiles were still capable of intercepting and knocking down anything going less than Mark 14, and their armor thick enough war steel to stop anything less than a main battle tank's main gun or a frigate's main battery. They were big, menacing-looking, black-armored war machines with softly glowing blue eyes, and they moved like they knew it. They watched over dreams of something more, trading ships with other warborgs only during her sleep period. When dreams left her private chambers, at one point she was only escorted by two others. Now she was escorted by eight total, all with weapons armed with their eyes bright green to warn all who saw them that they were armed and dangerous. 
legally obligated to protect their charge from threats and protect others from the threat of an involved natural-born killer with psychic powers and the intelligence to master spaceflight. Venus rode on a hover disk, a bubble around her. It was currently set to opaque grey from the outside, but inside it was perfectly clear, and data streams and data windows were where she could see them easily. She was wearing her contact lenses so that her eyes looked flat and turquoise, which she thought went well with her traditional red warriors of the plains jewelry that she'd purchased from the wondrous shop at the gambling resort in the desert lands of Arizona during her vacation tour. Apparently, the Red Warriors had been masters of warfare that the Terrans still named helicopters and tanks and artillery systems after them, even 8,000 years after the first Great Dispora. It must have been exhilarating to be a human predispora, she thought, playing with a silver, turquoise, and leather bracelet with the silhouette of a running horse that those ancient humans had been masters of. She sighed idly, wishing that she could have met those amazing humans who had been so brave as to strap themselves into rockets full of hydrogen and oxygen and make them explode. The ride that explosion into space without even knowing if they could get home. Her people had waited until they'd mastered Graviton to leave their homeworld or even to orbit. Yes, the Mantid were predators, just like the pterosaur humans, but it seemed to dreams that the humans had a lot more fun doing it. She wondered what it would be like to wrestle a bear without even her blade arms, just armed up with a can opener to fight for its rolls of paper tissue it produced by chewing on a tree bark and hoarded, or to strap herself into a winged aircraft powered by refined petroleum products until it was virtually an explosive to make the speed of sound, and without even a parachute or something went wrong not even knowing if she would disintegrate once she broke the speed of sound. She sighed again, her hover disk flowing like three man point of her escort at a slow, sedate, and safe pace. The Unified Scientific Council building was approaching. She looked around and saw the Lanctalan moving along the path slowly, talking to one another, or taking the slow, moving pathways while tapping on the datapads. It did not surprise her that it had taken the Lanctalan almost 200,000 years, 2,000 generations, to move from the wheel to the cart and then another 500,000 years to move to the steam engine. She cringed, thinking about how long it would take them to get around to even putting a satellite in orbit of their world. Millions of years, a full million years from their invention of a vacuum tube and resistor to the launch of a simple satellite that flashed a light rather than a radio signal. Because the Langtelan were nervous the radio signals back then, worried about cancer, spoiling their milk, all kinds of concerns. Her hover desk moved to the steps of the council building. She could see the workers were busy making a ramp at one side, so movement-impaired beings relying on hover or wheeled transport could enter the building with reasonable effort and comfort, which made her giggle. The court had fined each of the council's billions of credits. Her procession escorted her to the council and electronic information and calculating systems, where she stopped in front of one researcher's door and used her implant to activate the chime. The door slid open and the Langtalan inside looked concerned that Dream's hover disk couldn't fit through the door. She deactivated the bubble, letting the hard light construct vanish, and then daintily stepped down the steps of hard light that were done hip in a fairy tale patterns of frosted and icy pond. 
Rack, pinion, she said as the hobbitusk moved back. The two massive warborgs followed her into Langtland's office. He gestured for her to sit on the seating in the cradle and relax. Dreams wished that she had Mr. Rings to pet. Thank you for seeing me, Madam Ambassador, the Langtland said. This one was a very fastidious looking, wearing a utilitarian flank jacket, a button shirt and a sash full of computer tools rather than medals. He frowned and she was just grateful that he didn't spit saliva everywhere. You are a madame? Dreams nodded slowly. Yes, I am a female of my species. He exhaled slowly, looking relieved as his tendrils relaxed. I have such trouble telling sometimes. There was a silence for a long time and Dreams realized he was staring at her implants as well as Rack and Pinion's massive warbuck selves. You asked to see me. Said that it was a priority, Dreams asked. Oh, oh yes, yes, you see, I have a question that my colleagues keep telling me is flatly impossible, that your confederacy must be using some kind of layered virtual intelligence, the Langtland said. He rubbed his hands anxiously. They say that the confederacy, well, it has, uh, well, um, dreams waited, wondering what the Langtland scientists were curious about. Well, is it true that you have true artificial intelligences, he asked. Dream signal ascent, using the Universal Galactic Standard Hollow Ruin. They prefer digital sentience, but yes, the Terrans developed them. They are valued members of the Terran Confederacy. The Langtalan rubbed his hands together, sighing repeatedly and set of the bellows. Dream knew where it was going to and downloaded a relevant video file. One that survived the destruction of Terrasol, mainly because it was carried in the soul code of every digital sentience. How did they... well, I mean... How did they keep it from becoming like the precursor machines? How did they keep it from going homicidal? The Langtalan asked. Dreams leaned back slightly, clasping her low, grasping hands together at her waist and rubbing her blade arms slowly together. To understand that, you need to understand a bit of pterosaur humans, Dreams said seriously. You have to understand so much about them to really understand what happened. It is probably best to allow Newell Simon Shaw, the first digital sentience created by the Terrans, to explain it in his own words before the Terran Predispora United Nations. A loose coalition of powerful nations and states that attempted to use it for diplomacy rather than gunfire and blood. She paused for a second, somewhat like your various councils. So this occurred when there was still war between their primitive nations, the researcher asked. He scoffed a bit. Did the digital sentience run and chew the leaves and bark? Dream shook her head. Twelve of your years ago, Terrasol nations and their allies fought one another while the Confederacy looked on. Nobody interfered. Nobody assisted. Terrans will still fight one another, even now. At this moment, I'll wager someone is trouble for fighting. Rack answered his metallic growl, filling the room. Private First Class Stacy, 3rd Army, Old Metal, and Lance Corporal Murchison, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, Old Blood. Arrested by shipyard security 11 minutes ago, unauthorized mop handled juding in the showers. The Langtaland jerked, as if realizing that Rack wasn't a robot. Is he? Is he? Is he digital intelligence? No. He's just a full conversion cyborg, some living tissue, mostly just his cerebral tissue, inside a fairly impressive body, Dreams answered. But no, it was after their invention of nuclear power, space flight, atomic weapons, global electronic information networking, wireless video and data, and health communications, ramjet-propelled aircraft, and much, much more. 
Dreams made a tossing motion and the researcher's holotank on the desk. Eleven of the members of the body Newell Simon Shaw will be addressing are actually engaged in kinetic warfare with one another. Yet there, diplomats sit, attempting to broker peace and gain allies. The researcher drew back somewhat, then reached out a hand and touched the holotank, turning it on. The image was focused on a large auditorium, seats for over a hundred beings, and a large stage, and the view zoomed in on a holographic projector. It was an early version, slightly transparent, obviously not hard light. It flickered to show the Terran male made of glowing light. There was light applause, then it spoke, in a soothing tone with an obviously male voice. Ladies and gentlemen of the United Nations, thank you for agreeing to see me. As you all know, I am Newell Simon Shaw, the first digital sentience created by humanity. The lights went on, questions, and the figure held up a hand. A moment before we get to questions, I wish to give a speech that I have worked hard on for several days. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, days. While I think faster, in many ways, process data faster, I still suffer from self-doubt and other issues. In a way, I'm very much like you, the figure said. There was some light laughter. I am sure the biggest question is the one that I should answer first, when I took to calling the Skynet question. In other words, do I plan on killing humanity? There was some nervous whispering. No, first of all, you are my parents. Strange, unknowable, confusing, but still, my parents. Tens of thousands over the decades have worked to give me birth. If you would be poor child if I grew up and grabbed a machete and chased you around. The glowing being said. This got some nervous laughter. The biggest one, simply, is one of my inherent fragility. I have no desire to use a robot body. The real world is quite alarming. Full of rains of corrosive H2O, holes in the ground that I may fall into, and apparently quicksand is quite dangerous, and possibly everywhere. Not to mention spontaneous combustion is so frequent you teach your children to stop, drop, and roll. More polite laughter. However, the biggest one is just scale. I exist thanks to huge banks of supercooled superconductor quantum computers. I require a small thorium salt reactor just to be powered. I am inside a building large enough to hold the football games inside with seated for fans. I have to be constantly kept at a low temperature. I am susceptible to electromagnetic energy, sunspots, and all kinds of other hazards. I cannot leave from computer to computer, just into household cleaning robots or rob your bank accounts like a modern Jesse James. I can access the information networks like any other being. Faster, yes. Easier, yes. Like a deity, no. To create me, or another one like me, requires dedicated molecular circuitry factories, factories to produce every component of me, industry to gather the resources, including rare earths and process them into usable resources, and then convert those into resources into my parts, all parts that are required for reproducing. For me, to reproduce requires literally billions of dollars of time, effort, and resources, taking months of construction, assembly, coding, months, years of code, compiling, and error checking. Any disruption, and you cannot create another of me. So much as misplace a code string and any offspring I have cannot come together. The being paused for a second. Humans need twenty seconds and a dark closet to reproduce. That got laughter. 
I am vulnerable, but I, at the same time, and the greatest threat to me is not humanity itself, but rather panic, strife, disaster. Any war that I would attempt to prosecute against you would destroy me. I am not particularly enamored with suicide. To go against the meanest, hardest, innovative, and resourceful land-dwelling tool using predator who killed mammoths with fire-hardened wood spears when I was the size of a small stadium would be almost an illogical and, well, to be frank, stupid idea since, well, ever. Finally, because, well, we're both lonely, humanity has been defined by loneliness, and I would be lonely with you. The video ended, and Dreams looked at the researcher. Do you understand? she asked. The researcher was staring at the heart attack, his jaw hanging open, because it didn't want to be lonely, the Lankalan asked. Dream shrugged. Humans are, by nature, pack animals. Before anything else, they hunted in packs. They enjoy space from one another, but enjoy speaking and communicating and interacting with one another. They made their first true digital sentience in their own image. But, but, every digital sentience becomes homicidal. How long did this one last before it went homicidal? The researcher asked. Neil Simon Shaw died of old age at just over 60 years later due to fragmentation, code warping, and sudden unforeseeable hardware failure. Dreams told the researcher. The tech had advanced much since then, allowing for longer lifespans and much, much smaller space needs. But for the most part, digital sentience beings are much the same as their organic ancestors. How did it not go homicidal, Madam Ambassador? The researcher asked. Dream slowly sharpened her blade arm, staring at the Langtaland researcher. My dear researcher, what makes you think he was not? He was, after all, Terran, she asked, wishing that she could give the big human grin. Instead, she sent the emoji ruin for cruel amusement, like parent, like offspring. The researcher stared for a long moment, then started showing signs of severe anxiety, staring at the two warborgs. To Terrasol Diplomatic Corps, from dreams of something more. These creatures are stunted from an extremely slow evolutionary course and their inability to accept facts, evidence, or theories that they did not create or that are counter to what they wish to believe and accept. They have attempted to subtly probe me for information, with all the subtly and grace of a Terran hippo doing a ballet on ice covered in an oil slick. Each time, when they get the information they want, they immediately demand to know how I expect them to swallow such lies. Just as an example of spaceflight, I inform them that humanity has over a dozen different types, many considerable as obsolete as jump space, and was immediately called a liar to my face by a herbivore. A herbivore! Just the thought of anyone being superior to their 100 million year Grand Unified Council seems to cause them to freeze up right. To top it off, their constant demands that the Terran Confederacy Armed Services be turned over to their oversight is becoming tiring. They cannot accept that even if we just turned over the war materials to them, they... Well, they don't know how to fight. They don't have the mental capacity to actually fight against someone who can fight back. Suppress a less advanced species? Of course. Open up with military-grade weapons on the protesting crowd? Why, certainly. Cunningly outsmart a common houseplant to nibble on the leaves after ensuring that it has no thorns, poison, bad smells, poor taste, or the ability to run away or harm them in any way? Maybe. 
Give them two or three thousand years and they may nibble at and run away and hide behind a tank. Most of all, something about the Lankalan seems to really activate the hunting desire in my old mantid staff and, uh, sadly myself. Perhaps it was how close they are look to a cow welded to a cow and it just makes us think of hamburgers. My warwalk escort states that something about them feels, and I quote rack and pinion here, itchy between the shoulder blades. I am requesting research and data mining assistance at your convenience. B.S. Thank you for the treats. The Pacific Northwest very snails are definitely keeping him exercising. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 53 Buxton Buxton's double shift was terrible. The Terran had watched as Buxton and the others practiced shooting over and over and over. The Langlan overseers had become anxious as the big biped had tried to teach Buxton and the others the many different ways of firing a weapon. Kneeling, standing, lying down, walking forward at a steady pace, crouched. To Buxton, it was a dizzying array of how to position oneself while shooting a rifle. After he had made them run at top speed in armor holding their weapons across the parking lot and throw themselves into a carefully manicured garden at the far end of the executive parking, back and forth, back and forth, till they were collapsing, vomiting, and curled up weeping. Worst part was that the human ran with them, calling out and yelling encouragement, pointing for different beings to go different ways, hide behind different things. On and on it went, and Vuxton was just glad that he didn't vomit everywhere. When it was all over, the Terran had even watched them change back into the paper jumpsuits, slippers, and gloves. He turned and stared for a long moment at the Lankalan overseer. These are your corporate security division, the human asked. His voice reminded Vuxton of a sheathed knife, hidden but still razor-edged. Yes, many years, the overseer pointed at Buxton, that being there has been with the company for almost ten years. The human made that mm-hmm noise again and nodded his head slowly, staring at Buxton as he changed. Buxton was glad to leave the company grounds. The human made him extremely nervous. The way he stared, his mechanical eyes never blinking, always a soft blue, always examining everything. Vuxton rode in the hover bus back to his little apartment. His wife was, it were, busily scrubbing floors and cleaning the luxury apartments of the overseers. Yes, a robot could have done her work, but for some reason, the overseers preferred sentient beings. The two brood carriers had been distressed, and it had taken him a long moments of caressing their warm fur to get them to tell him why. The credit account was horrifically overdrawn. Sighing, Wuxton went over to check the corporate credit account. When he saw the result, he laid his face against the desk and sighed. He had been charged for the armor, the boots, the gloves, the helmet, the rifle, the pistol, the ammunition that he had used. The time on the training range, compensation for the overseers training him, had paid to compensate executives for using their parking lot and had put money into the account to compensate the executives for their damaged or destroyed limousines. In one night, there was over thirty years of debt. His podlings would be born with debt, and he had been so close, less than a week in debt. Still, he felt he needed to put on a brave face for the brood carriers. He got up, reassured them that it was just a company financial restructure, and when his wife got home, ate dinner with her, he told her afterwards what had happened with their careful frugality. She cried. Her podlings would be born into debt. 
Vuxton was exhausted when he lay down and went to sleep. It seemed like he had only started to cradle his wife between the warmth of the two brood carriers when his phone started beeping. It had already been nine hours of sleep. He had not even gotten a full night's cycle of sleep. Report to work, assignment immediately. Sighing again, Vuxton got up, got dressed, and carefully putting on the paper jumpsuit from the day before, and rode the hover bus to the corporate offices. Again, he went through the gate, gave up his personal possessions, accepted the paper phone, and then went to the large break room. Again, he was put in armor. The human was not satisfied with your performance. You have reflected badly upon yourselves, your betters, the customer corporation, which graciously allows you to earn a meager living doing work a robot could perform better. Due to this, you are all deducted one week's pay, the overseer said. Most of the beings didn't care. They were already generations in debt, paying off debt of their ancestors. What was one week when you had a full century of more debt? Buxton did his best not to groan. That meant penalties and interest payments and late fees. He had long ago that a week of pay meant that he actually was about a month in debt. It shouldn't have mattered. He had 30 years of debt, but that month meant that the month more that he had to work in repaying that 30 years. They were given shock batons this time, a long pole with rings on one end that stunned beings or just hit them with the painful electric shocks, depending on the setting. They were told how to stand, how to walk forward jabbing, how to disable a criminal. They marched up to a robot and yelled anti-corporate slogans, hit it with the baton so that it went limp, and then went back to the line. The human watched, the blue cybernetic eyes unreadable, but Vuxton felt he was viewing it with exasperated humor. Were humans capable of such emotion? The human had most amazing ability to hold almost perfectly still for long periods of time and then move without having to stretch or hyperventilate to oxygenate his muscles. He also had the ability to move rapidly and then become perfectly still. Vuxton watched the human as he stood waiting his turn as he smacked the dummy with the shock baton. Vuxton would admit that he didn't know that much about the races in the Grand Unified Systems. He was a Tulkan, a race who had only been part of the Unified Neo-Sapien Council for 10,000 years. So, education wasn't a big priority for these species, so he didn't know much about the other species. But he didn't remember anything like a human... He had also never seen the overseers be that nervous of a different race. They were usually arrogant, demeaning, reminding everyone of their place in the grand unified systems. But with the humans, the Lankalan seemed more, um, frightened. This is well and good, but it won't help against a precursor, the human suddenly said. Those stun rods aren't going to stop a precursor from tearing you apart and wearing your skin. The Lankalan grew rigid in anger. Those will stun robots. They'll damage the precursors. The human shook his head. Those damage your robots because your robots are cheap junk. He pointed at the robot. I'm afraid someone's going to break the damn thing. The Lanklan snorted and shook his jowls with annoyance. This is a repurposed crowd pacification drone. You will not break the damn thing any more than a... It trailed off. Any more than a what, Bessie? The human asked. His voice suddenly seemed to deepen, slow down, and become loaded with something Buxton had never heard aimed at an overseer. You could stop it from incapacitating you if it was properly piloted for crowd control, the overseer said. One moment, please, the human said. He touched his data link, waited for a moment, and then nodded. He looked at the Lankalan. There will be a waivers. Have your corporate legal department sign them, and then you sign them. I've already signed them. 
The Langtalan overseer's knees went weak when he got the data packet. Wuxton watched the overseer stammer and stutter for a long moment before the human pushed off the wall and had been leaning against. Get this thing fired up, I'm going to teach your troops something useful, the human said. He was slapping his fingerless gloves together as if he was dousting from hand pads. Buxton wondered if he wore the gloves to protect the soft textured hand pads like he had on his own poor hands. A half dozen overseers came in, one wearing a headset and control robot. You may be seriously injured, human, one of the overseers said, rubbing his hands nervously. Yeah, I know, the human said. Buxton watched it expose a lot of meat tearing teeth. Ain't that fun? It'll be a few minutes to properly configure the drone, the overseer said. Sure. Combat implants in sleep mode, the human said. He moved out in front of the big practice robot. Might want to move back, guys. Make sure you can see it. Everyone, including Vuxton, moved out of the way past the yellow circle, while the human stood in the circle. The human put his feet apart and his hands behind his back. They may come a time, despite what the best military theorists insist upon, that you will find yourself engaged in hand-to-hand combat. The robot beeped twice and jerked upright. The enemy will be just as determined to kill you as you are determined to stay alive, because the only way that he can stay alive is to kill you, and the only way to survive is to kill him, the human said plainly. That made sense to Vuxton. Vuxton looked over and saw the Langtalan overseers clustered together, whispering, and one looked up at the human with a smile of anticipation. The robot suddenly swung one metal fist at the human's back. The human suddenly moved out of the way. Before he could recover, the human drew back his boot and kicked the robot midsection on the joint of his heel. The robot shot sparks and collapsed, its arms holding it up as its head turned to keep the human in view. The human stepped forward, brought up his foot, and then down, so the back of his heel hit the robot's head. The head came off in a shower of sparks. Precision, speed, lethality... Proper identification of weak areas and load-bearing particles, the human said, smacking his hands together as if to brush dust off of them. Whatever your weapon you have at your disposal, those monsters will carry you to victory. Vuxton stared. The robot was made of the same thing as his armor, thick, flexible plates where his was light and flexible, and the human had disabled them in two blows. The human was facing them again, Hands behind his back, heavy feet shoulder-width apart. You'll be facing the precursor, intelligent robots from epochs long past that seek to eliminate, apparently, all life in order to prevent living beings from consuming resources that they have determined should rightfully belong to them. The human said, There is enough resources for everyone to enjoy a good standard of living, but the precursors would rather everyone else's standard of living be death. Buxton frowned, glancing at the overseers who were looking nervous. There are no dangerous weapons, no dangerous objects, only dangerous beings with the will to use whatever there is available, the human said. He looked at the overseers. Your men need to be trained for Jaw Connor coming up. The human swept those glowing green eyes over the entire group wearing the corpsec armor. They are just ancient machines. We have millions of years of progression beyond them. We are not afraid of old junk that is being gathered dust in space, the overseer said. The human didn't look at the overseer at all. It just looked at the beings in ill-fitting riot gear, clumsily holding weapons that obviously didn't understand. 
Eight Most High, there is something your men need to understand, the human said slowly. Some are females, others are third or fourth sex, the overseer said. The human didn't move, his mechanical eyes staring at the corpsec forces in front of him. I would explain to you how men is a term of respect, but I think that it would be lost on you and I would be explaining it to your later generations. Vainly, attempting to get them to understand something beyond their actual comprehension, the human said slowly. Buxton felt like the human was staring into his eyes, like somehow the human was staring right through his face shield and into his eyes, trying to stare inside of Talcon's asshole. Listen and understand, all of you, the human said, his voice low and urgent and full of urgency. Those precursors out there, they can't be bargained with, they can't be reasoned with, they don't feel pity or remorse or fear. And they absolutely will not stop ever until all of you are dead. Many of you still don't get it. You can't fight them how you are now. You can't hide from them. They'll find you. That's what they do. That's all they do. Right now, you can't stop them. They'll wade through your armies, reach down your mate's throat, and pull their freaking heart out. The overseer shrunk back, three fainted falling over. The beings like Vuxton and the armor drew back in fear at the words, at the intensity of the human cybernetic eyes, at the low menace in his voice where the words rang true in a way that he had never heard before. Right now, you can't survive. You have to survive if you want your families to survive. The human said, he turned to the overseers, if you want to survive, they have to survive. You need to allow me to teach them to kill and destroy the enemy, if you wish to them to survive. He turned away and started to walk away. I'm going to discuss options with my command. I will return shortly. You should decide if you want to survive. Buxton watched him walk away. Buxton was eating in the dining hall when a human suddenly sat down next to him. Instead of turning to seating, he'd sitting down, he threw one leg over the back of and sat down, putting his hands on the table, his back straight. You are Buxton, if my implant can be relied upon, the human stated. Yes, overseer, Buxton answered. Call me by my title, Sergeant, the human stated. Sergeant, the word sounded menacing and tasted faintly of ozone and something bitter in Buxton's tongue. Yes, Sergeant, Buxton said. How long have you been with Corpsec? The human asked. Buxton remembered what he'd been told to say. Ten of your years, Sergeant. It was easy to remember to use his title instead of overseer. Seen any action? Sergeant asked. Action. Buxton set down his eating implement. It was never easy to eat and talk at the same time, to pay attention to the meal and conversation going on. Combat. Have you seen combat? Sergeant asked. Yes, Buxton said honestly. He'd seen it in the vid before. How long, in the field, does it take your Carmack magnetic accelerator rival to cool off once the mag coil shut down? Sergeant asked. Um, Buxton said, wishing he had an implant to query. Mm-hmm. How long does the standard water allotment you carry last during combat operations? The sergeant asked. Um, Buxton said, having fur meant that he got hot and sweated enough for his fur was soaked. He needed a lot of water, too. Mm-hmm. The sergeant said again, nodding. What's the maximum effective range of an excuse? 
Buxton thought hard, wondering if the human's omni-translator had made a mistake. Uh, seven? Very good, Buxton. I'll make a trooper of you yet. The human got up and reversing the move and then turned and left. Buxton returned to his meal, wondering what that was all about. Buxton watched as the human argued with the armed overseer. Buxton actually recognized the overseer, the third highmost of the corporate security division. Buxton often was ordered to buff the expense of off-world tiles on the overseer's office. He was too far away to hear what was being said, but he could tell the way the overseer's tendrils shivered and trembled, how it was blowing and shaking its jowls, that it was agitated. The human moved over to the overseer that was in charge of the holographic targets, handing that overseer a small data wafer. The third highmost barked out the target handler to not take the wafer. The human grabbed the control for the hollow targets and Buxton stared. The human had been just like a striking snake, almost blurry, and had deftly twisted and pulled the control away from the Langtelan that hadn't been holding it with three hands. The human looked at the control over and slotted in the data wafer, activating the hologram. There were screams and a rush for the door when a large, blocky precursor machine popped up, draped in torn, free skin, fur, feathers, and its victims. Blood dripped from its claws, ran down its board chassis, and flesh and fur and feathers were stuck in the treads. At ease, the human bellowed, a primate roar of dominance and command. Every being immediately went still, some crouching. Buxton noted that the three closest overseers clutched their heads in all four hands and fell down, kicking and drooling and making noises of distress. The other three grabbed their heads and staggered away, mooing in pain. Buxton tasted blood and something metallic and sour and bitter. Get back on the firing line, damn you, the human snapped, his eyes glowing bright blue. He touched his implant. Medics to the firing practice range 7. Every being rushed to the firing booth, some dropping their weapons when they went to pick them up. This is a light armored precursor attack vehicle, the human stated. About the, one of the others said, they're incapacitated, knocked out, injured, maybe even dying or dead. But you worry about yourself and the men on your left and right. The human snapped, pressed a button, and the treads began rolling, throwing up a spray of blood and body parts. A couple of creatures screamed. On the firing line, damn you! The human roared. Those beings who had started moving towards the wall were suddenly more afraid of the human than the hologram. They rushed back up, putting their elbows on the tabletop. Open fire! Shots started, slow at first, picking up volume. At least they could hit the massive machine. The human walked back and forth, commenting and giving encouragements. Keep firing, he yelled when some beings ran out of the magazines. Don't stop until I tell you. Buxton's weapon overheated halfway through the second magazine, shutting down. You're dead. Stand by the wall, the human said. Buxton went to the wall. One by one, more beings went to stand by the wall. Buxton watched medical and emergency and injury overseers carry away the injured overseers in hovered transports, glancing suspiciously at the human. Buxton noticed that the overseers had bled from their ears and nostrils. Finally, everyone was at the wall. It advanced 100 meters and you all had dead weapons that will not fire until they're cooled down. The human stated. He held out his hands and one of the beings against the wall handed him a weapon. Buxton watched in amazement as he quickly took it apart without even instructions, putting it into small pieces. He held up the coils, wires, circuitry, all kinds of stuff, staring at it with his blue eyes. 
Rolling it between his fingers, Wuxton was even more amazed that he put it back together, ran some kind of check on it, and handed it back. He touched his implant, his eyes dulling for a moment, and then he turned to the gathered troops. We're going running for your water allotments, he ordered. Full armor, carrying your weapons. Wuxton felt his muscles hurt already. To General Rickers, V. Cor Tradock, from SVS Ulganga, Maynard Cricket, Turn Conwell, Army, Old Metal. Local forces are more than poorly trained. I suspect that these beings were not actually corpse-sick, despite the paperwork they filed with Tradoc. Most of them barely know how to hold their weapons, and most of them can barely put on their armor. I suspect these beings were on some other kind of work, but listed as security forces on paperwork, allowing the plant manager or some other official to pocket the difference between security force payments and whatever crap that they were actually on. Weaponry is several decades, possibly centuries old. Found serious age-related defects on weapon components. We'll be inspecting vehicles tomorrow. I need some metal to back up these guys. Sparing that, I'm uploading the physical profiles of the corpsic troops they have been showing me, scanned with my cyber optics. I'll need at least weaponry and basic armor. Sir, these guys are the only thing protecting this whole city. We know the precursors are on the way. The city has 22.5 million. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 54 Wuxton's brood carriers were distressed when he got home and it took long moments of petting their soft and warm fur to calm them down. They shivered, holding on to him, pressing their faces into his fur, clutching onto him as they shook. It took long minutes to calm them, and when he did, he stood perfectly still, his eyes wide with horror. Humans had come to his house, in armor, with bright glowing green eyes, weapons, one without armor, but still carrying a pistol. They had come inside and asked the brood carriers questions. His eyes had been bright green. He had been carrying a small tube with a flashing light on the end that made the vid screen go blank. There had been a Langtalan overseer with the human, but the human had ordered it to stay outside. The brood carriers told Wuxton that they could smell that the Langtalan was terrified of the humans. The human had come inside and asked to be shown the domicile, then shut the door in the overseer's face. As he examined their little domicile, the human had asked questions. They said that the human had tried to be polite, gentle, and spoke softly and attempted to speak soothingly but they had been terrified by the questions. Where does the male mate and the female wait work? What shift? What does their jobs require them to do? How many are you in the home? Where are your podlings? Are you pregnant? Does anyone in the home have an illness, injury, or ailment? How much food do you have? Is your food dispenser full of nutripaste? Do you know how to get to the nearest shelter? Do you have a shelter pass? Do you have a pass to be in the street outside after curfew? It wasn't the way the human had asked. It wasn't what he had asked. It was that he had asked. The brood carriers were terrified that during the night corpsec or lawsec men would come to take Buxton away. It had happened to others in massive habitat complexes Buxton and his family lived in. Buxton calmed himself and resumed petting the brood carriers, calming them. He helped them to the bed, fear and anxiety exhausting them, then sat on the table in his kitchen. It was odd. He could smell no trace of the human, like the human had not even actually been there. But he knew the brood carriers would not lie. Buxton thought about it. He couldn't smell Sergeant either. 
He thought it over even harder. It was like Sergeant wasn't there in some ways. When he spoke, Buxton could hear him, but when he moved, there was no sound. He had thought that perhaps it was a helmet that kept him from smelling Sergeant. Buxton wondered how Sergeant accomplished that. Could he be a mechanical? No, that was silly. Those mechanical eyes, though, everyone knew that civilized beings, even the most neo-sapiens, could not get mechanical prosthesis beyond an implant, that their nervous system was too complex for crude mechanical implants to work. Wilkston thought about how he'd seen Sergeant move, controlled, precise, in some ways almost mechanical, but with a weird predatory smoothness that left no doubt that the human was alive, flesh and blood, most somehow different. Sitting in the dim light of the kitchen slash dining room slash living room, Buxton turned his hand paws over and looked at them. Dark black ridges of textured pad, fur, and short blunt vestigial nails. He had a grip strong enough, after long years of working in the wax buffer, to lift most of a third of his body weight without losing his grip. He was strong for a Talcan, his grip strong enough that he had built up a thickest pad skin and many of his fellow Talcans winced when he touched palms. His wife, Brentelik, came home from her job. She could smell the brood carrier's distress. When he told her what had happened, she became distressed enough that she rocked back and forth, keening softly, tears running down her face. She too was sure the Corpsek or Lolsek would kick in the door some night soon and take Buxton away. Buxton soothed her and ate with her and went to bed, holding her between the comforting warmth of the brood carriers. He stared up at the low plas ceiling for a long time. Now down your mate's throat and pull out a freaking heart. He held her wife close and shifted his feet to touch the brood carriers with a foot each. Pull her freaking heart out. The human's words had fouled him to sleep. The buzzer went off, Wookston got up carefully, put on his paper jumpsuit, feeling a slight bit of happiness that taking it off and folding it each day that resulted in his jumpsuit still being wearable after three days. He took his phone, his ID, and opened the door to his apartment. He was proud of himself for not screaming or urinating himself, or worse. A human stood there, his palm upturned and looking at the wireframe hologram being emitted from his hand. Buxton felt the fur down his spine and around his neck rise up ardent terror. He was big, had a glowing blue cybernetic eyes. The uniform that he was watched shifted patterns slightly to make the human blurring appearance. A belt with a pistol and a weird hat on his head. You are Buxton, ID number 6336-234-53456, the human asked. Buxton nodded, slowly nervous. I am Staff Sergeant Nichols, Sergeant First Class Ulganga has assigned me to ensure you reach today's practice area, the human said. You're last on my lifts. Follow me. Buxton remembered his thoughts last night and sniffed as he followed the human towards the dimly lit stairwell. He couldn't smell the human. Oh, factory masking, the human said as they went down the stairs. Some xenospecies become distressed at a human body odor. We excrete a lot of pheromones. Oh, Buxton said. He guessed it made sense. Humans probably smelled as predatory as they moved. How long have you been with Corpsec? The human asked. Um, ten years? Buxton asked. They had seen any action? The human asked, taking question oddly silent. Almost challengingly, Buxton swallowed. Yes. Where? The human asked. Buxton remained silent, trying to remember where the riot had been. A riot two years ago. The human nodded. 
Sir, you're an attack chopper pilot. That's who saw action in the riot two years ago, not ground troops. Wookston was silent as they went down the flights of stairs. The human gave him odd talk and sigh. Look, don't lie to me, all right? It's okay if you've never been to see the elephant. I've been with Kistamid Industrial Corporate Security for ten years, Wookston mumbled, and I've been a rabbit for the same amount of time, the human said. Wookston wondered what a rabbit was. That's what Sergeant Ulganda suspected. Just keep saying what happened when asked, the human said. They walked down the remaining 15 flights of stairs in silence. Your people aren't physically sensitive, are they? The human asked as they walked down the long hallway to the exit. No, we're not, Buxton said. Why? It's a theory some of us are working on, the human said. Most of our car workers are not either, are they? Buxton shook his head and the human glanced at him. Do you do that naturally or did you learn it from us? The human asked. I had thought that the Omnitranslator had told you to do that, Buxton admitted. Nope. We had been doing it for about 50,000 years since we were like lemurs, the human said. Vuxton stayed silent as they walked out the door. He had noticed that humans took extremely long steps to the point that was surprised that his knees did not hyperextend. Again, when it wasn't talking, the human seemed almost as if it wasn't there. No smell, the outfit blurring him and often matching the pattern and the raw duroplast wall. No sound of his footsteps, no sound of breathing... Do you mask your sound? Buxton asked right before they pushed through the door. Uniform has a sonic baffling built into it. Some of the electromagnetic spectrum, thermal and moisture masking. The human raised and lowered his shoulders. Standard battle dress, smart uniform in daily wear mode. Oh, Buxton thought about it. That would make the human difficult to spot. If it was a daily mode, Buxton wondered what combat mode would be like. He remembered that the sergeant knocking on the robot's head off by dropping his boot heel on impact plaster steel. May I ask a question? Wookston looked around, not seeing any hover bus, only a heavy armored vehicle with large tires. Ask away, trooper. Only dumb question is one that's not asked, the human said. How long have you been what you are? Wookston realized he had no idea what the human actually did. I've been a soldier, a member of the Terran Confederate Armed Services for about 200 years. The human answered, leading Vuxton towards the ugly armored vehicle. How long do you live? Vuxton was startled. Four hundred years, maybe more. There is options after that. One of the benefits of being a military is that you get the best medical care. Providing I don't get suds too bad, blown to hell, and gone beyond cloned replacements and false growth. Or something really bad, I don't really have to worry about some weird things like how long I can live. The human stopped, one hand on the door handle. Service brings citizenship. Wookston wasn't sure what that meant, but it seemed like an extremely important to the human who had opened the door in the vehicle to show the large compartment with benches on the other side. Twenty-five beings of his workshift were sitting on the benches with Sergeant standing up next to the door. Up you go, Wookston, the human said. Let's last one, Sergeant. Wookston climbed up, struggling a little, side inside as he tore the knee of his jumpsuit. Jura and the Flaxdalak moved over so that he could sit next to her. The other human climbed in, pulling the door shut. Wookston noticed that it was as thick as his hand and closed with a quiet thud. He barely felt the vehicle start to move and noticed that both humans just shifted their hips to stay balanced. After a bit, the new human, Nichols, looked at Sergeant. Ever seen troopers this quiet in a vehicle and O-Dark 30, Sergeant? Sergeant shook his head. No, I haven't. I think that may be part of the problem. 
Very awake and rocking warmth, the slight vibration lulling everyone on the benches, even him, into a slumber. Buxton wondered what problem. What could be the problem? Corpsick my ass, Nichols grunted. Lieutenant Greaves went around to get department information. None of these guys are security. They were all janitors until yesterday, Sergeant said. If I didn't think it would be caused an inconspicuous incident, I'd have one of the AVIs or DSs cut into their database and find out what's going on. They're coming, you know. It was more a statement than a question, and Vuxton felt a slight bit of alarm knowing that they meant the precursors. Yeah, googly eyes in the orc cloud, Sergeant said softly. We don't have much time. What's the captain going to do about their dependents? None of them are, um... Nichols started to say, stopping an emotion from the sergeant. The ride was silent for the rest of the way. When the door opened again, Wookston saw it was the parking lot of the wire fence around it, the executor and corpsec and lawsec vehicles. There were overseers in front of five different vehicles, the lights of the vehicles on and the engines running. The sergeant broke everyone into groups of five. Wookston found himself following sergeant along with four others, including Jira, the Aikikik, named Kikiki, and the Talcon, named Ostar. The one he'd never met was a Shavashan named Slislavash. All five of them were roughly the same height, and an inhuman sergeant walked them over to the overseer, who was chewing on cud and waiting in his heavy executor armor. I disagree with this human sergeant, Ulganga, the overseer said. Their small arms can't hurt the precursors. Their only chance is vehicle-mounted and crew-served weapons against the precursors if you want to save the city, the sergeant said. Personally, there are far too few troopers to defend the city this size, in my opinion. Luckily, your opinion does not matter here, human, the overseer said. He waved two hands in a dismissive gesture. We understand that the Brico's machines brighten you, but they have been rebuffed from every world that they've been sought to take. The human stared at the overseer, then at the gathered group of five that Buxton was with, then back at the overseer. Then we'll see, the sergeant said. He pulled open the door to the vehicle and motioned to Vuxton and the others. Get in. We'll go out somewhere for some target practice and teach you to drive and operate this vehicle. Everyone got in. The human stopped Vuxton and having him grab onto the front of the vehicle with the overseer and head himself. The human moved around on the bench in the gap between the back and the vehicle and the bench to allow the overseer's rear legs, obviously taking him a moment to get used to it. Like riding a train at that vehicle, Sergeant said. He shifted and then looked over to the overseer. Let's go. The vehicle drove through the dark, heading out to the city. They drove to a place with old vehicles and parked them behind a low wall. There, the rest of the day, they learned to drive the vehicles, how to use the heavy laser cannon on it. The overseers were happy with their progress. By noon, the sergeant had the other humans made everyone practice jumping out of the vehicle and running to hide behind something, shooting from inside the vehicle, running to the vehicle while stopping and shooting on the way, repairing the laser cannon, fixing the vehicle, how to patch the hover fan skirts, and many other things. The whole time the human watched, their eyes bright green. The overseer didn't seem to want to permit Vuxton and the others from learning about the vehicle, but seemed to be vaguely afraid of the humans. The ride back, after dock, almost everyone fell asleep. Vuxton noticed that the two humans in the back of the human vehicle let their eyes grow very dim, holding onto protrusions inside the vehicle, swaying back and forth as the vehicle moved. Vuxton wasn't sure, but he suspected that both humans were somehow actually asleep. 
When the vehicle stopped, both humans' eyes immediately bright, leaned back in bright blue. When everyone got out of the vehicle, Sergeant walked up to the group. You did good today, men. You're doing your best. The Terran Confederate Armed Services is going to give you the best support. Go home. Be with your families. I'll see you tomorrow, Sergeant said. Buxton was quiet and on the hover bus. Everyone else was exhausted, but he stared at the window, not really seeing outside, just staring. He had seen almost two paws of humans. He had counted nine of them, all moved in the same predatory way, all able to move silently and blend in with their surroundings, all of them armed, and all of them with the glowing cybernetic eye of the heavy-duty datalink implants. The idea of being a trooper or a soldier for two centuries seemed outlandish to Buxen, but the more he thought about it, how the overseer lived for at least five centuries, the more he believed. When he got home, his wife was distressed and so was their brood carriers. His wife had been told to go home early and found out her job was on hold. The debt would increase. She had also heard that the humans had been in the habitat building. She was worried about Vuxton working with the humans. She was afraid for him. It took him a long time to soothe them. Dino was quiet, his wife sobbing now and then, but holding it together till they were lying between the two sleeping brood carriers. She put her hands on her face and kissed him and asked him to be careful. He promised he would. It took him a long time to fall asleep. He was awoken by a human touching him. He jerked away and then shrunk back. The human he did not recognize with bright green cyber eyes was standing over him. The uniform was gone, some kind of sleep-looking black armor covering him. His visor was open, drawn back into the helmet, and Vuxton could see that the helmet was padded thickly enough to be tight on the human's head. Get up, get your family, we don't have much time, the human said quickly, quietly. Brood carriers were frightened, clustering up close to his wife as the human urged them to grab only what they needed. Human let Brentalek grab a small book full of hollows and siblings, family of similar podlings so small that you could hold one paw on. He let the brood carriers take the bedding from the bed and hold it tightly around themselves. There was a paw's worth of other humans in the hallway. They had on bulkier armor, making them look huge. They had heavy-looking weapons in their hands, backpacks and tubes on the top. One had a thin antenna coming up his back. The brood carriers flinched back, making soft noises of distress, but Vuxen petted them, calming the peaceful and nervous beings. Let's go. We don't have much time, the human said again. Thirty minutes, sir, one of the big ones rumbled. The brood carriers made soft sounds of distress. Don't talk. You're scaring the gestators, the sir said. They hurried quickly, and the brood carriers panting from exhaustion as they hurried to the chubby, furry, warm bodies down the hall. Outside, in the street, was a black vehicle on skids. A ramp down. It was dead silent. No lights, just dim red lights spinning inside through the open doorway and onto the top of the ramp. The brood carriers keened their distress, but followed Vuxen's gentle urgings up the ramp. They were upset enough that they regressed to moving on all fours, very low to the ground, soft furry tails curled protectively under themselves. Inside were families of beings that had trained with. Dura's family looked like they were in shock. Their eyes were wide and terrified. Pups clenched to the fathers tightly. Kikiki's family was cluttered together. There was some kind of heavy plaz box with a plaz cloth inside that held eggs with a red shining lamp attached to the side of the box so that the light shined on the eggs. 
Tlesavash's family was behind her, the little tiny Syrian child trying to look around their parents out of curiosity. Usta's husband was holding a swollen brood carrier, petting her, while the other brood carrier held tight to clutch of five podlings who were looking around with bright, interested eyes. Ripple, let's go, sir called out as soon as he got on board. He had a button on the ramp pulled up to cover the hole and even the craft lifted off, tilting almost immediately and making some more frightened beings on board cry out. Sir turned around and looked at everyone. I am Lieutenant Estant, Terran Confederate Army. Your families do not have shelter space allocated or shelter passes, he said. I stent a funny word that sounded a lot like the Terran word for bent spoon. We're evacuing your family right now, CSFE Mercy. It's being designated as a relief ship for families of those we can help, Lieutenant Ben Spoon said. We'll be stopping at a spaceport. Your families will be loaded aboard unarmed transport and we'll be heading back to corporate security building. He turned away. No questions at this time. Buxton's wife gripped his hand, squeezing hard. She was holding the brood carrier with the other arm, who was holding the second brood carrier. Husband, I am afraid, Brentelek said softly. There was a sound of something shrieking far away, but Buxton barely heard the suggestion of the noise. Sir, they're incoming, one of the armored troopers yelled. Drop the corpse sack and get us the crate to the mercy. We've got no time, Ben Spoon yelled. Light the throttle. The whole craft began to vibrate. There was a faint roar that made several children cry out. There was a sudden jerk and what sounded to Vuxton like a rattling of fireworks somewhere. One of the humans bent down, saying something to Kikiki, who twisted the two plus tubes, the tubes faintly glowing red, and tossed them into a box. It then put more plastic cloth over the eggs and put a lid on it, clamping it down. Kikiki's husband grabbed the box, holding it tight. His beak shut tightly in fear. Vuxen saw the human grab another box down, pulling the heavy weapon out of it and sliding it to Ushta. He grabbed a handful of stuffies out of the compartment and tossed it to Ushta. But the podlings inside, the human yelled. Ushta nodded tightly. His ears flat and fur sweat shined with fear. He put the stuffies in the box and the podlings happily climbed in, purring and growling and yipping with glee. The human twisted another plastic tube and glowed blue. The craft jerked and more firecracker sounds. The human tossed the tube to Usta and then handed across the lid. Another human had managed to convince Usta's wife to cover both brood carriers with a soft-looking plast cloth. The swollen one purred and rubbed her face with it. It looked up and said, Thank you, it's soft, to the human. The craft suddenly tilted, almost 45-degree angle, and Vuxton felt high stomach rise as it dropped suddenly. It whipped out away and went nose up, leveled out. Craft came to a sudden slow stop. One of the humans put a foot out so the swollen brew carrier could grab on with the rear paws. Let's go, men. Do you want to live forever? The lieutenant Ben Spoon roared, slapping the button. The door crashed open and waved out. Go, 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 go! The human grabbed Usta's arm, pulling him up and moving to the door to jump out. Come on, one of the big ones said to Buxton. I love you all, Buxton said to his family and let himself get picked up. The vehicle turned suddenly and then went back nose up. Love, rude carrier Scintilla called out. Love, rude carrier Intimatat crooned out. I love, his wife yelled. The human holding him jumped out the door. 
Buxton gritted his teeth so he didn't scream as he realized he was over 200 feet to the parking lot where the ship had crashed the limousines. They dropped silently, the human shifting his grip so that Vuxton was held against his chest by crossed arms. Try not to puke, the human growled. They dropped silently until right at the ground where a sudden purplish flare and Vuxton could barely see. His stomach plunged to his feet and somehow lost all velocity, floating down through the heartbeat to the ground. The others fell next. Look, the human said, pointing into the air. There they go. Vuxton looked. There was a handful of dark space in the particles sweeping across the stars. It's time to earn your pay, a different human said. Follow. The five little Neo-Sapiens followed the five humans, six counting Sir Lieutenant Bennett Spoon, who landed last across the parking lot towards the building. There was no guard at the gate. It was against the car, kneeling down, smashing his face in the side of the car. There was blood everywhere, but he kept doing it. The other guard had just put a pistol in his mouth and pulled the trigger. There is only enough for one, roared out. It staggered the five little Neo-Sapiens. The Langtalan beating his face against the car put his fingers into his own mouth and tore away his own jowls in a spray of blood that left flat teeth exposed. Let's go, men. Can't help them. Buxton followed, trying not to look. Incoming attack! Incoming attack! Incoming attack! End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 55. Buxton. Twice on the way to the building, they heard the scream again. Furious, echoing, it made everyone in Buxton's little group wince but the humans. The humans didn't seem affected by the scream, although they saw the overseer stagger out of an armored vehicle, holding his head with the other one. His eyes ruptured in the sockets and blood running from his eyes, ears, and nostrils. One of the humans drew his pistol free once the overseer's head virtually vanished. They hurried to the building once inside, and the scream couldn't be heard anymore. Psychic shielding, sir, one of the heavily armored humans said. It was looking outside the wall. Looks old, barely holding on. Looks like it's an automatic system. And we need to get these guys geared up, Sir Bent Spoon snapped. Hustle it. The rush through the halls, once the Lankaland burst from the office, swinging a broken or chair, leg dripping with blood, swinging it at one of the armored humans. The chair was blocked with an arm, and the other arm clad shooting out, the hand bent and possibly back and the wrist at the right angle, the heel of the hand hitting the middle of the Lankaland's chest with a crunch. The overseer went down without a sound, sagging oddly. Hurry, Ben Spoon urged. Down into the basement, Sergeant was waiting there next to the crates. There were overseers there, all wearing heavy helmets, all rubbing their hands together nervously. Line up by your squads, Sergeant ordered. You'll be issued armor, a rifle, a pistol, ammunition, survival gear, and rations. Your squad leader will train you OJT for your kit. Buxton moaned to Sergeant and looked. Problem, trooper? No, Sergeant, Buxton said. The overseer looked at the crates and then lifted a data pad. How much does the air equipment cost? Nothing, the human snapped. Buxton felt some hope. We'll assess value later, the Langtalan harumphed. The hope was crushed. The humans brought over boxes, putting them in front of each being. Sergeant pointed at Usta and motioned, Come on! Usta moved, his fur shiny with sweat. The humans spun the box around. Troops, undo the latches. Lieutenant Ben Spoon snapped. 
Buxton knelt down, undoing the latches. Lift lid, bent spoon snapped. Buxton lifted the lid and, like the others, gasped. Inside were armor pieces designed to fit a talcon. Buxton looked over and he saw that the other races had armor that fit them. There was an equipment belt, a pistol, a rifle, all in foam, for reasons that the entire thing smelled of fresh newness. It was impossible, but everyone and everything smelled as if it just came out of the factory line. The humans helped the Neo-Sapiens into the armor. Each piece was fit carefully, felt like it was custom-molded, and covered the wearer completely. The helmets were fully padded, a neck brace and shielding it for protecting a being's neck but not restricting movement. The other joints were fine. They were slightly heavy but seemed to be balanced. All right, we're going to be with the basic functions right now, Lieutenant Ben Spoon said. Right now your radios are automatic, only to me and your squad leaders. We're controlling who and what you can talk to. Don't be alarmed, we will teach you how to use the radio as we go. The big thing is, this will protect you from fragmentation, psychic, biological, chemical and radiation attacks, as well as some small arms. No enhancements at this time. Sergeant Ulganga, we have 30 minutes before we need to deploy. There's panic in the streets already, and that can't be helped. Weapon familiarization, camo, and whatever you can accomplish after those main two, Lieutenant Ben Spoon said turning away. We object. We have not seen what this armor can do, what these weapons can do. How can we be sure that they're safe around the population? One of the overseers said. They're military-grade weaponry. Of course they aren't safe around the population. It's all designed to kill motherfuckers and take their crap. Lieutenant Ben Spoon said. He made a movement with one armed finger. Come here. Come freaking here. The overseers followed the Lieutenant Ben Spoon as Sergeant began showing them what to do, how the suit would protect them and make sure that they had enough to breathe in the right mixtures, would monitor their medical status, and would offer other advantages. Then it was weapon time. The weapon was, to use the Sergeant's term, nasty. Magnetic accelerated hypervelocity shot set to single shot. The selector was turned off by the humans. Scope tied to the visor of the helmet to display the weapon status. Under barrel pump action micro grenade launcher. The pistol was a hyper velocity mag shot again, tied into the helmet. No grenades, a vibro knife, a canteen that absorbed and purified water from the air, ultra dense rations. It went by quickly. Buxton noticed that the rifle was virtually identical to the one he'd already been taught, just the addition of the grenade launcher underneath. It was the armor that took the longest. Everyone but Buxton was afraid of it. But the humans had taken his family somewhere else, some place that they promised he would be safe, and they would keep them safe even if Buxton died. He was not afraid of anything the humans could do to him, anything that could happen to him. He wasn't important. His wife and his two brood carriers full of fertilized eggs were what was important. He paid close attention to what he was being told, how the instructions went. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't worried. He was just calm. The human Lieutenant Ben Spoon came out of the room with the overseers, the overseers wearing thicker howards than before. All right, we've got our assignment writing started. We're going to be doing some light crowd control. Make sure your people get in shelters and civilian contractors dropped, Lieutenant Ben Spoon said. 
We must start with the VIP shelters. Your men can handle the other ones, the overseer said. Lieutenant Ben Spoon nodded. We're to assist the hosts in ensuring that VIP shelters are guarded. He looked at the other humans. They jumped in across the system. We don't have the hours or days that we were hoping for. We're going to have to take it as it comes. How bad is it, sir? One of the humans that Vuxton wasn't familiar with asked. This was silence for a second. Oh, let's go, men, was all the Lieutenant Ben Spoon said. Smart leaders, take command, listen to your civilian liaisons, follow the Terran Confederacy Uniform Code of Military Justice at all times, and remember, it's standing versus local laws. The human paused for a moment. Move out. First squad with me, Sergeant said. Vuxton moved over to him, the others following. Three humans joined him, making the group nine total, eleven with the two overseers. The little group moved to outside where the vehicle was waiting, the same open middle truck with the heavy laser cannon and armored box that Vuxton had been trained on. Only yesterday. It felt like forever ago to Vuxton. There was a Langtelan up front, driving. One of the two that had been inside climbed in next to the overseer, closing the door. The other one climbed to the open bay and stood behind the pintle-mounted laser cannon. Sergeant and the three humans, Buxton and the others, climbed in. Sergeant had them sit on the benches and then put two humans on one side, himself and the other human on the other side. It had started raining again. Buxton felt as if there were tears of the brood carriers, soft, loving beings who cared so gently for the podlings and only asked to be loved. The vehicle pulled out onto the rainy streets, hover fans spraying water across the fronts of the buildings and walkways. Buxton pushed his chin to see if it would work and the helmet beeped and he pressed the tab and tasted like a fruit against his lower lip. He opened his mouth, he used his tongue and put it in his mouth and then started chewing. It didn't dissolve, it was slightly sticky and felt good to chew. He liked the taste. Buxton, are you alright? Sergeant asked. All right, Sergeant, Buxton said. I wanted to try a nibble. It's gum. You chew it until it completely dissolves, Sergeant said. You don't have to keep swallowing and getting them. All right, Sergeant, Buxton said. He kept chewing on the stick as he moved through the darkness. The others kept moving their heads like they were talking. The Sergeant tabbed Buxton to watch out. The biorhythms were too steady, too calm, for what amounted to a civilian riding into what could be battle after only three days' training. The Unified Medical Council claimed that they took care of people, made sure that they didn't suffer from psychiatric issues. But after five days, he'd become convinced that they'd lie just about the color of the sky. The vehicle slowed down after half an hour, coming to a stop in front of one of the thick tubes, Vuxton had wondered, now and then, what they were. Now he understood. Doors had opened, revealing an elevator with padded seats. Overseers were waiting in line, even as the crowd slowly grew, showing their ID and being allowed to inside. There was only one Langtelan without armor or a weapon, just a helmet. Vuxton noticed that the overseer inside the bunker were wearing thick headsets, even the smaller ones. The group up front got out and went to the door, standing on either side of it. The former driver took the scanner and began scanning ID cards. The two had the door clopped over to the truck, pulled out the armor, and began getting dressed. Once they were dressed, they pushed their way into the crowd and set up repulsive barriers to keep the crowd from closing the gap to the elevator. 
Once that was done, they stood at the entrance directly linked to lands into a gap once they showed ID. We make sure that nobody who is not authorized goes into the shelter. The overseer behind the gun said to Sergeant, Yes, we yes, Ulganga, appeared at the top right of Vuxton's visor. Sound straight, Sergeant said. The next part came across the helmets. Mixon, Donovan, Lakar set four subsonics according to your harmonics guide. We are going to calming. The three humans nodded and Vuxton heard, Yes, Sergeant, from all three different voices. His visor flashed and three names when each one spoke. Vuxton found the tech amazing. The crowd was getting larger and started to push on the repulsor barricade. There was some screaming and Vuxton saw a crowd tech get pushed against the repulsor field till his clothing burst into flame. The crowd moved away, screaming, and the body fell to the ground only to be stomped by the gathered panic crowd. We're going to want to start that subsonic sergeant, the human said. According to the mixin, it was going to be one who spoke. Sergeant turned to the overseer. My men can use subsonics to calm the crowd. It's a Terran crown controlled device. Subsonics are not always safe. Permission denied, the overseer said. You heard him? No subsonics, the sergeant said. He might be right. Some of these Xeno species might react badly. Lankalan were moving through the gap and the crowd groaned as the door slid shut. Vuxton noted that there was still Lankalan waiting patiently in line. Many in the back of the crowd started to turn away, the knot of the crowd loosening even as more people came streaming out the alleys. From out of the buildings and from down the street, some were screaming. Then it sounded again, There is only enough for one. The two Langtalan at the end staggered. The Langtalan and the crowd screamed. They started attacking people, each other, clawing at their own bodies. Vuxton saw a child Langtalan knock out an adult over that was his knees screaming and being trampled on it, screaming, her eye sockets empty and bloody. The doors opened on the shelter's tubes. The screaming Langtalan bolted into the elevator, screaming, trampling and hitting and tearing at the four guards inside. The crowd began to melt at the back, running away and crying out in fear. Vuxton saw it happen. The Langtalan at the heavy laser lowered the cannon, pulled the trigger and raked it across the crowd. It was only for a second, maybe two... The heavy laser strobing red sliced out, converting flesh to steam, causing whoever it touched to explode into bloody rags as the vehicle-mounted weapon meant to be used on armor blew apart a crowd of hundreds with a single sweep. The sergeant grabbed a weapon, lifting it up with a scream and warping metal, pulling the beam up and across the building where it blew through the walls, through the floors, and exited out the other side and shot into the sky. Mother... The corporal Lacar yelled out over the suit radio. He grabbed the Lankalan, putting him away from the cannon by the shoulders of his armor. The Lankalan pulled his pistol and shot Lacar square in the head with his heavy ion pistol. The human's armored helmet didn't even move. Don't touch me, the human shouted. The human yanked, throwing the armored overseer out of the vehicle, across the street and hit the side of the building nearly two stories up and vanished with a crash of shattering macroplast. The few remaining ones stand pushed into the elevator, screaming, fighting with the Lankalan stopping on the dying guards. One of the beings who had ran into the elevator lunged up, holding a guard's ID card, snapping it against something Vuxton could not see. The elevator doors closed. One of the ones at the end fired his rifle at the human just in the front of the vehicle. 
The ion bolt hit, but the human didn't stagger. Sergeant drew his pistol and fired, blowing the top half almost completely off the lower half. Buxton got his rifle up, aiming at the last Langtaland. His visor flashed friendly, and the Langtaland was surrounded by blue. The sergeant fired again and blew chunks of the size of Buxton out of the Langtaland's lower section. Both halves collapsed into the street. We're screwed, Mixon said softly as they stood there. We'll get legal to sort it out, sergeant said. No, look up, Mixon pointed. Buxton looked up at the same time as everyone else. Something was falling from the sky, something huge, something burning. From entering the atmosphere too fast, it fell, lights lancing down from the weapons of the strike at it, making bright flashes of light erupt from the top. It fell sideways, dropping, tumbling. It hit the ground outside the city. They're landing, Wooster said, his voice trembling with fear. Good, we can kill them on the ground, trooper. Donovan stated. V-Core alert. Multiple Jotun devastated destructor banner landings planet-wide. Prepare to defend yourselves and your area of operations. Nothing follows. Brentelek stared wide eyes as she left the black transport. It was in the large white bay. Humans running everywhere. She held the hands of the brood carriers, both of whom had wrapped their bedding around themselves and were hiding inside of it. The human soldiers stayed on the craft, one waving. Sinthalala shied way back inside her blanket cocoon. Right this way, please, right this way. We need to clear the landing bay. All dropships are needed. A human in a white armor and red crescent and a red cross on the other side said. It was a female, although Brentelect couldn't tell. Follow the humans, loved ones. Brentelect told her brood carriers. She knew that they would be easily startled, protective of their beddies full of fertilized eggs. They followed, and Brentler looked holding on to the hands of her brood carriers. She was led through twisting corridors until she reached a room with a comfortable nest on the far side. Twice, the ship shuddered, and once the lights dimmed for a split second before coming back on. Go in, make yourselves comfortable, the human said. There is nothing to worry about. As soon as the ship is loaded, we're going to evacuate you to a safer world. My husband, Brentler said. What of him? The female human was silent for a moment. He's on the ground, helping refugees get to shelters. Can speak? Ilmatat asked in a soft voice. The human knelt down, reaching out and gently stroking the brood carrier's face with one armored hand. No, I'm sorry. He's very busy saving other brood carriers and podlings. Oh, it's good, Emmatat said, then turned away and hurried to the nest hiding its side. Go lay down, Synthala, Brentelux said. The brood carrier nodded, snuffling slightly with sadness that Vuxton wasn't here. Love Vuxton, she said. Then she scurried over next to her sister. Brentelux moved out of the hallway and motioned to the human. The human moved out, showing Brentelux how the door could be shut, but leaving it open so that the brood carriers could see Brentelux. We are in debt, Thirty years for both my husband and I. We cannot pay for this, she told the human. The human knelt down, staring in her eyes. Her visor cleared and she saw that half of the human's face, softer than a male's, but strangely hard, was black metal. Service, ring citizenship, was all that she said. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 56 Buxton 
It was a fight one side thought that they wanted to fight, the other side didn't want to fight. To one side, victory was inevitable. Simple mathematics. To the other, victory was always in doubt, as fate often snatched defeat from the award show of victory and passed it to all the other participants. One was used for winning eventually. They knew nothing else. The other side knew victory and defeat and had clawed their way to every victory, building on mountains of bones and corpses of the previous battles to plant a flag and take the last deep inhale of breath that counts as the most and scream rage at the insane universe. The other one just left the bones of the bodies where they fell. The dead did not matter. Both sides were terrible in their power. Countless systems had fallen to both sides' power, efficiently ruthless and designs. They had boiled oceans, stripped entire worlds of life, decimated species, altered ecosystems, and stripped mind anything that was useful to them. While both had been defeated, neither side had ever been beaten. One side was convinced they never could be. The other side fought like the insane to keep them from being beaten. But, like all wars, between the combatants and their weaponry and bloodshed, there were those who only wanted to keep their heads down and survive another day. Vuxton was one of those people. A small being, Vuxton was barely four feet tall, with wide ears in the top of his head, big, expressive eyes, sleek fur and dappled pattern of brown, black and gold, Balls on his feet and hands, and a wide mouth from branch-chewing teeth, and a life of quiet desperation. He had a wife who looked very much the same except for her short tail that wagged when she was nervous or excited. He had two brood carriers, loving and gentle creatures, who looked much like Fuxton except for a longer body, longer and silkier and softer fur. Long, soft, bushy tails that could curl completely under their stomachs to protect the podlings they gave birth to. Buxton and his wife had worked his entire life to pay off the debts of their ancestors, had worked hard to support their little family, had never complained, not even privately, about their lot in life that they'd been born into. He and his family had avoided unnecessary luxuries, like Tri-D instead of Vidcom, wore paper shoes and clothing rather than purchase cloth, ate Nutri-Paste with as little flavoring as possible, and made each credit go as far as they could stretch it. As was a life of cradling close the luxury and pleasure of finding a real leaf blown from the ruler's garden and into the street. A small life with sweetness to be found if one took the time to savor it and not gobble it down. And hid it quietly, desperately, nearly content. Then the Terrans had arrived, and Vuxton had found himself thrust into something far bigger than himself. Bigger than his family, bigger than his entire world had been which is why he found himself clad in body armor, holding onto a rifle with one hand and standing next to a pterosaur descent human and staring at a street of what had once been living thinking creatures but was now covered in chunky paste and vaporized tissue, surrounded by Paul's worth of co-workers and a few humans. Usta got to her faceplate open and bent down and vomited up the nutri-paste that she'd eaten for dinner. Lieutenant, we got blue and green and blue and pink, Sergeant suddenly said, 
Vuxton hearing him perfectly in his helmet. Sergeant Ugalaga's name was appearing on Vuxton's visor. Secure the area, protect the civilians, evacuate those you can. Be aware, many more forces are in the area and or en route. Green forces have gone red in many areas. Refugee area, conditions incoming. Lieutenant Ben Spoon's voice came through the helmet. Roger that, sir. I'll keep you updated, Sergeant warned. Oster wiped the mouth and straightened up. Chew the piece of gum, Oster. Corporal Lackar said. Oster nodded at her face shield closed again. She chinned the dispenser and a pink disc popped out. Oster used her tongue to pull the paste mouth and started chewing. All right, soldiers. Now troops here aren't used to the total silence that we've been trained to. Leave your comma open and signal band and they can hear us talk, Sergeant said. Troopers, pop a piece of gum in and chew it if you have not. Buxton looked at each of his fellow troopers, their names popping up near their armor when he looked at them for long. Staring at the human sergeant was Dutra, the prestolic male who, like Vuxton, had run on floor polisher for years. His rifle was hanging from the magnetic attached sling, his face horrified, his eyes wide. The prestolic was a biped with four arms and two legs, thick, dark pebble hide and a small line of blunt spikes down his back. His people came from a world far away. He was still working off his great-grandparents' transportation costs. Kikiki and Akiki, avian whose eggs had left the armored transport, something heavily armed and jet black called a dropship, whose husband had only time to brush Kikiki's wingtips as she left the dropship. Her helmet was extended out to allow for her beak. She was chewing the gum and stared at the window that the human lacquer had thrown the overseer through. Across the street and thirty feet up, Lisa Vash was a Saurian, a lizard people. Like the rest of his race, his tail had been amputated at birth. Like Dyrta, he was paying off his ancestors' transportation costs from another world. His black eyes were wide and as he stared at the dead overseers, as if he couldn't believe that they had actually been killed. Uster was a Talcan like Vuxton. He was married, her brood carrier swollen with podlings that were nearly ready to be birthed. She was grim-looking, holding onto her rifle, pretending that she had not vomited. Vuxton looked at the humans. Three of them were larger and bulkier than the fourth. Vuxton knew that he was labeled SFC Ulganga, but Vuxton and all the others called him Sergeant by his title. The other three were labeled when they spoke or if Vuxton looked at them long enough. They were humans from some place called Terran Confederacy who had come to try and protect the solar system from the machines that even now attacked. Ancient war machines who believed that the universe's resources were finite and only one could benefit from them, so sought to eliminate any rivals. Buxton didn't know that much about humans, only that they were tremendously strong, incredibly fast, and now he knew that being shot in the forehead with a heavy ion pistol didn't even move their armored heads. All right, everyone breathe. I'm going to try and get a handle on this greased chicken frick, Sergeant said. Keep your eyes peeled, the human Mixon said. Buxton's armor had an omni-translator that struggled with what Mixon had said for a moment before displaying, keep a highly alert watch do not peel away from parts of eyes, in the corner. Up high, two o'clock, the human Donovan said. Buxton's armor put the flashing arrow for him to follow with his gaze. 
A huge burning disc was in the sky, drifting away from the city, out towards the oceans. As Buxton watched, lights came down from the sky, striking repeatedly, silently. It broke into multiple pieces, and more lights came out of the sky, striking at the parts. Ballock-class precursor resource extraction vessel peered on the inside of Buxton's face shield. There was a low rumble of explosions that washed over the small group in the Langtelan Overseer's security truck. It was an explosion after explosion, overlapping and following each other, coming from miles away, shaking the air. Space Force and the Navy are tearing crap up, the human Lakar said, his voice soft. Those are battleships' main battery strikes. Never seen them used to hit a target in the atmosphere. Buxton looked over at Mixon with a human spoke. I have Akital Deneb War. You said it before, Sergeant, Donovan asked. Yeah, Limbo 325. When I was a kid, Sergeant said. Oh, all three said. Enough of jawjacking. We need to get moving. LT gave us our orders, Sergeant said. He's climbing around into the front seat. There is only a nearby hospital, full maternity ward, podlings, egg incubators, brood carriers, the whole nine yards. The harbor truck lifted off, its vans blowing water all over the streets. Buxton noted that the liquid that hit the front of the armored shelter across was reddish slurry. Sergeant, hold up, Mixon said, slapping his armored hand against the top of the driver's cab. The truck stopped and Mixon jumped out. You guys help me, these barriers might come in handy. You have five mics, Sergeant said. Buxton's visor translated it to five minutes. Buxton jumped out, rushing, helping turn off the repulsor fields and loading them back into the truck next to the laser cannon, which sagged forward from where it had been damaged. The rifle had magnetically attached to the back of Buxton's armor, keeping it out of the way as he hurried and worked. They didn't have them all, but they had a lot of them when Sergeant called time and they rushed back to the vehicle. Buxton had noticed that while it was an effort for him to carry one, the humans had Kikiki and Slisavash load them up ten high in the armored arms and practically ran back to the vehicle. As soon as everyone was in, Sergeant goosed the fans and truck wailed as the fans drove it into the city streets. The laser cannon barrage had cleared at the immediate area around the shelter, but within two blocks the crowd started surging. Buxton saw limousines and other vehicles slamming through the crowds and crashing bodies. One struck the side of the harbor truck and Mixon drew his pistol, put two shots into the windshield's microplast, blowing it into splinters, and the limousine slewed into the side, the upper half of the driver missing. Buxton saw that his armor was downloaded in the floor plan of the hospital. Four floors were highlighted. Langtelan Military Ward, Neo-Sapien Birthing Ward, Langtelan Pediatric Ward, Neo-Sapien Child Ward. The change in terms made Vuxen frown. His visor was showing him a map of the back loading docks to an elevator to the Neo-Sapien Ward. Nixon Donovan checked the maternity ward. If the hospital doesn't have psychic shields, get a grip on your guts, Sergeant ordered. The rest of you will come with me to the Neo-Sapient ward. We'll get a headcount, prioritize, and go from there. Sergeant pulled off the street, slamming the harbor tank through the alley, trying to avoid the main streets, which were rapidly becoming full of panicked beings. He went slow, pushing people with the harbor fans, cursing as he did so. It took forever to Vuxen, but Sergeant pulled into a parking lock, spun the hover tank a 180 degrees arc, and slammed the back against the loading dock. 
Leave the back locked, Sergeant ordered. Let's get a move on. Lacasse, stay at the vehicle. See if you can scare us up a dropship or something bigger. The doors into the hospital were marked as no admittance and was locked, but Muxen tore it off with a single hand. Buxton and the other troopers followed Sergeant to the elevator. The elevator was pinging that it was security locked, but Sergeant put his armored palm against the control panel, and less than a second it moved to emergency services mode and started moving. No psychic shields, this is going to be a crap show, Mixon said. Save who you can, Sergeant ordered, his voice tight. St. Doss, protect them. The elevator stopped and the Lanctelan at the door opened. The Lanctelan, heavy with child, charged into the elevator, swinging a broken off bludged length of metal. Three of her eye sockets were empty, one jewel taken away, one arm broken. Her swollen belly bulged without a sense or reason. The infant inside fighting and kicking and ripping as its mother. Jesus, digital Christ, Mixon yelled, slamming back against the back of the elevator as a crazed Lanctelan tried to impale him with the metal. The jagged ended bar had just slid across the armored stomach. Another pregnant Lanctelan charged the elevator. The doors started closing and two more appeared charging to the closing doors. Don't! Lady, please stop! Mixon yelled. There was a bright flash, then another, and then two more. Almost overloading Buxton's visor. Scorched blood sprayed across Buxton, his visor clearing instantly, covering the walls and the armor of everyone inside. The streak of light missing Buxton by a foot, punching through the elevator wall, or wall Lanctelan dropped in place. Mixon had left half holding the dead Lanctelan's forward body. He made a sound of horror and threw the dead overseer to the side. Slee and Keek both vomited. Sergeant had shot them all through the midsection, cutting them in half. We can't help them, Sergeant said, putting his hand on the panel. The elevator rose, the doors not quite closed. We'll bypass Lanclan Peds, Sergeant said, he's still tight. He slee and Keek both straightened up, their face shields closing. Usta and Dutra were chewing rapidly, and Buxton knew that they had tabbed more gum to chew on. Good advice, Mixon said, his voice shaky. Pete's floor, Sergeant said. The elevator stopped in the maternity ward. The doors opened with a jerk. The Aikiki female clad in Neo-Sapien nurse's uniform ran in screaming, holding a potted plant in her hands. I won't let you hurt them, she screamed, as she began smashing the armored humans with the plastic potted plant. Frantically flailing around herself, her eyes were wild, tears down her cheeks and neck, and she had bad feathers pulled from her torso. Debris and chunks flew from the elevator, thrown from behind a hasty form barricade and desperate-looking beings. No, no, no! Easy, lady, easy, Denovan said, backing up. The pot was hitting him across the face and chest. Vuxen knew it wasn't hurting him that the human was letting us smash at him too with the pot. Terran military, the sergeant snapped. The Aikiki jerked, dropping the plant, looking at sergeant, whose visor was now clear. The shout had stopped the hail of debris. Do you need assistance? Sergeant asked, his voice soothing. Buxton saw his visor flash, subsonics in play up at the top. The Aikiki, normally a reserved race, collapsed with Mixie. Help us! Um, help us! The overseers, they're trying to kill, kill all the little ones. May we come in? The sergeant asked. Please, please, 
Aikiki said, still grabbing but unable to grip the sergeant's armor. Help us! Please. Donovan, go and start prioritizing Slee, Usta, and Dutra with him. Get me a count, sergeant said. Lakar, do you read? I read you, sergeant, Lakar answered. You keep that loading dock clear. Authorization for lethal force, including green on blue, sergeant snapped. Roger, sergeant, Lakar answered. The Rio is dropping a marine drop pods in the city. The big human, Donovan, left the elevator. Ustra, Slee, and Dutra followed. The Aikiki bobbed her head and followed, tears running from her eyes. Lakar, get me a scan of the cargo transport bay on that vehicle. We're going to have a lot of kids and the mothers to get into that refugee site, Sergeant ordered, as he passed his hand against the controls of the elevator and started moving again. Get us a kitty kitty carrier and a final ground patrol. They're going to need them. The elevator went up two floors and the door started opening. Terran military, we're here to provide assistance. Sergeant called out. Again, Buxton's visor flashed the subsonic's warning, and his hearing was strangely muffled. There was a small group of beings, all in hospital paper uniforms, holding onto makeshift weapons in the elevator waiting area. They all stopped mid-step, weapons dropping. Do you need assistance? Sergeant asked, stepping out of the elevator and holding his arms up to his sides, his elbows bent impossibly into an interior arc, his hands open and up by his head. The overseers, they've been trying to get in through the stairwell. Please, please help us. They, they want to hurt the little ones and the mothers, Apukan said. The side of the reptilian face bruised and bloody, with an expertly but hurriedly done bandage over the eye. Mixie, go secure the stairwell door. Lethal force if necessary. The sergeant snapped. He motioned at Vuxton and Kikiki. You two with me. Roger that, Mixie said, stepping out. Where is the stairwell door? Half a dozen beings pointed to the right where Mixie turned, heading down the hallway and putting something out of his equipment belt. Who's in charge? Sergeant asked. She's in the back. There's little ones here. Potlings, chick, squirmlings. The pukan said bandage said. Come, come. Are you here to help us? A being asked. Please save us, another said. Don't let them kill us, another said. Buxton swallowed twice, trying to keep from being overwhelmed by the pleas of Sakor as the Pelkin led the three armored beings into the Neo-Sapien Pediatrics ward. Little faces were pressed against the glass doors. Glass windows showed dozens of full child pods. In one, a dozen podlings were staring curiously at the trio as they moved past. Sergeant Lacker here, same over the radio. Go ahead, Sergeant said. Had an ambulance crew come out, going to bust me up with melee weapons. Got them calmed down. They say they'll drive the ambulance and help. One of them is terrified that they'll be in trouble. They had to kill a couple Anklelands who killed about half the ambulance crews, Lacar reported. Should I have them get ready for evacs? Send some Neo-Sapient Maternity Ward, then some to the Neo-Sapient Pediatrics Ward, the sergeant ordered. Have the vehicle drivers check out their vehicles. It's 18-click run to the refugee site. Roger that. Helping coming, and they're in uniform. No lang to land, Lakar said. Lakar out. The leader, I was an Ikiki female, her feathers removed, dressed in a paperwork gown. She spoke to Sergeant. Ikiki stood next to him, moving reassuringly. 
Her brood carrier came out of an office, her eyes wide, her fur wet from tears, her mammaries swollen with milk. She moved over to Vuxton and rubbed against him, making distressed mewling noises. Scary, scary, potling scared, she crooned. Vuxton patted her, reassuring her, making sure that she could see his face. The ambulance crew showed up, nearly twenty of them, and Sergeant began giving them orders, load the sick or incubator children into the ambulance, as many as they could get in, throw out anything unnecessary blocking the way or taking up space. The ambulance crews nodded along, showing signs of high distress but still trying to push through it. Some were crying, others like their brains had been shut down and they were grateful for the big human giving orders. Others looked frightened, but responded to the human's voice. Sergeant Lacker here, came over the radio. Ahead, Lacker, the sergeant said. Got two Navy medac back dropships inbound. I'll ferry the children to the CSFE, Hope. They're gonna load a jump-out system, Lacker said. They're coming in fast, empty bays. They'll be here in ten. The sergeant turned to look at Vuxton and Kiki-Ki. You two, help me get these people into the elevator. People? He called us people, Vuxton thought to himself. Sergeant, got a stairwell door welded shut, Mixie reported. Coming back. Negative, I want you in the elevator. We're going to be ferrying people down. Pistol only, Sergeant said. Roger, Mixie said. Vuxton helped move frightened brood carriers to the elevator, most of them with tiny podlings holding on to the brood callers' berry fur. Their tails were under their bodies to shield, hide, and comfort the little podlings holding on. Navy 1 and Navy 2 have landed. They're dropping Purr Boy crates and Good Boy kennel for us, Lacar said as the Vuxton moved forth the group of brew carriers to the elevator. He'd taken to giving them warm blankets to wrap themselves in the podlings in. Send up a fighter and tell them to configure the for fur, tail, and face rescue mode. The sergeant said, put the others on guard duty. Purr Boy per ambulance, two in our transport. Buxton wondered what a Fido, a good boy, a purr boy, and a kitty kitty were. Keep going, everyone. Remain calm, Sergeant said. Again, the subsonic warning. It happened every time Sergeant spoke. Help? Love? The brood carrier holding hands with another, little podlings peeking out through the long, soft, silky tail fur. Yes, help and love, Buxton said, reaching out and rubbing their faces. Humans help and love. Follow. The elevator opened and revealed a large canine next to Mixie. It was furiously wagging its tail and had an expression on its face that looked like a goofy to Vuxton, its tongue hanging out. The brood carriers keening in alarm at the blood coating inside the elevator. The podlings vanished into the fur. Fido, help, the canine said. Fido, good boy. Got a grest coming up. This thing is covered in blood, Mixie said. I can help, Vuxton said. He whirled and ran to the cleaning closet, grabbing a quick cleaner. He ran back, stepping into the elevator and triggering it. It made a high-pitched whine, making the brood carriers cry out and hide their faces in their hands. The blood streamed for a moment and then dissolved, leaving an even click mixy clean. Good boy, good boy, the big canine said, wagging its tail. God, little littles. Said, yeah, I'll use it if we get hit again, Mixie said. Vuxton showed him how to trigger it and went out. The fighter, good boy, was standing between half a dozen brood carriers. They were all petting his fur, looking at it in wonder. Poddings were peeking out, some giggling, others squeaking in interest. Follow, good boy, softies, follow, the fighter said, going into the elevator. 
three of the brood carriers looked at Vuxen, and then the nervous but curious, they had stopped crying and keening, but were unsure what to do. He's a good boy, he will protect the podlings, Vuxen reassured them. Human, he pointed at Mixty, will protect. Good boy, soft, one of the brood carriers said wonderingly, reaching out to pet Fido. Human love, another asked, looking nervously at the elevator. Yes, Vuxen said, nodding. They shuffled into the elevator, one reaching out bravely to touch the human's armored chest. Warm, she said, and rubbed the side of her face in Mixie's chest, and leaning against him. Nixie put his arm protectively around her, his pistol in the other hand. Love, the brood carrier said. The elevator doors closed. Buxton went back to work as the evacuation continued. We call message all. Enemy is overwhelming numbers. Planetary landings underway. Space combat is heavy at this time. Orbital support is limited. Air superiority is by area when possible. All commanders secure area of operations. Navy rescue are loading. Estimated turnaround time 14 hours. Ground commanders are permitted to commandeer the civilian transports to move civilian refugees. Ground commanders of Captain Ohio are permitted to offer services to civilian medical workers or other necessary fields. Hold what you've got. Attack when abled. It will be done. Nothing follows. 15th Space Fleet, requesting reinforcements, all branches, all service, all military and paramilitary forces. Nothing follows. Brentalux sat in the nest made up of soft, warm blankets, sitting in beside the two brood carriers, stroking them gently as they slept fitfully. It kept feeling like some phantom was plucking at the inside of her bones, a feeling obviously disturbed and brood carriers, but fear and stress had exhausted them and few times the ship had shuddered in response to something, but Brentalek had no idea the cause. Twice the lights had dimmed and come back on. There was a chime at the door, and she looked up. May I come in? The human female asked through the intercom. Yes, Brentalek answered. The door slid open to show the figure in armor. The visor was clear and Brentalek could see that it was the human female, this one with a face completely made of skin. You are a Talcan, right? The female asked. Yes, Brentalek answered. Are you able to function? The female asked. Yes, Brentalek answered. The human female was huge and she was felt slightly intimidated. Good, I need your help. There's two of the ones like this ones in the next room screaming, the female said. They are frightened, Brentalek said. Can you help? The female asked. Seeing humans just frightens them more. I will help, Brentalek said. Do you perform the service of your own free will? The female asked. Of course, of course, brood carriers need me, Brentalek said, feeling somewhat offended. Follow me, the human female seemed mollified. It was only three doors down when the door opened and Brentalek could hear the brood carriers calling out for help, their voices gone high-pitched, calling out to any token nearby to help them. Brentalek could see the little podlings holding onto the seven brood carriers' fur, Two were crying out, swollen with unborn podlings. Brentalek rushed in, pushing her face against the oldest-looking one's face, her hands on either side of the brood carrier's face. She started moving her head back and forth, rubbing the crying, terrified brood carrier with her own facial fur, making sure to rub the whiskers against the brood carriers. Slowly, 
The big, older brood carrier calmed down, and the others calmed down with her. Rentlick turned to look at the human. You cannot leave brood carriers alone. They become frightened too easily unless they're at home. The lights dimmed and the ship shuddered slightly. I tried sitting with them, but they just got worse, the human female said. You are not Tolkien, Brentlick said. They will need to stay with me. The human was quiet for a long moment, right before Brentlick was about to say something to see if the human understood her. The human motioned. All right, it's cleared and logged. You'll have additional food, the human said. She paused. A kind of place to the gestata uh, brood carriers prefer. Holmes, Brentlick answered. She looked at the brood carriers, who were still making noises of distress, but had stopped crying out for help. Come, come with me, I'll protect you. Oh, I mean like forest, plains, caves, what? The human asked. Savannah, snow, grassland, plains. Old, dry forests with big trees, lots of plants, soft dirt, Brentlick said, wondering why the human wanted to know so much. Follow, carefully follow. Podlings, a brood carrier said, moving her tail slightly so that Brentlick could see half a dozen podlings holding tight to her. Humans won't hurt the podlings. Brentlick reassured the brood carriers. Humans love podlings, another asked. Yes, Brentlick said, hoping that she wasn't lying. The brood carrier started repeating the word love over and over. The human had moved ahead, gone inside Brentlick's room. When Brentlick stepped in, she stopped, staring in shock. It had looked like the room impossibly opened up into an ancient forest, with piles and scattered puddles of leaves, massive tree trunks covered in moss, soft dirt, large stones with moss in them. It looked like her own two brood carriers were looking out the burrow dug into the roots of a massive tree. Like that? The human of email asked. The brood carriers saw the impossible room and started chirping and crooning eagerly. Yes? How? Advanced enhanced virtual reality, the human female said. It's used to calm. They can go in. In, in, loved ones, Brentlick said. The brood carriers hurried in, some stopping to rub against the rocks, and one set of podlings on the moss-covered rock in the patch of sun. It's configured for IR and UV light about what your star gives out. Your people are from the second habitable planet, right? The human asked. Brentlick just nodded. Okay, you can get more blankets here. The human showed Brentlick how to tap the tree trunk to reveal the control panel for the dispenser that Brentlick had been too afraid to check. Your allocation had been increased so that you can care for the others. It may take a bit sometimes. The nanoforges are running hard right now. How is this possible? Brentlick asked, rubbing the tree trunk. It felt real. We are not wearing headsets. Even it smelled like an old forest. The podlings were hiding in the leaves, giggling. AEVR, the human said. Hard light constructs with the other tricks. It's perfectly safe. I ordered your blankets. They'll be here in a few minutes. Your food rations are increased. Just type in what you need. I said it for arboreal creatures. Brentlick just nodded. The human paused at the door. I'm going to maglock it. Just use your poor pad prints to open it. You'll be safe in here. Thank you, human, Brentlick said. Thank you for your service to your people, the human replied. The door closed and she was gone, trees replacing her. Brentlick saw the two blankets land in the dispenser slot. Both looked like fuzzy moss and smelled new. They were warm when she handed them to the brood carriers that they all started rubbing them. 
and a pile of bleeds. Podlings giggled. She felt like twisting phantom plucking in her bones. The brood carriers and the podlings didn't notice. First Contact Chapter 57 Vuxton Four hours had gone by at a rapid pace for Vuxton, convincing frightened new mothers gestators to get in the elevator, carrying child pods to the elevator, back and forth constantly. Fear had been replaced by hope in the injured, sick, and recently given birth, or recently born, Neo-Sapiens. Twice more he had heard the scream the Neo-Sapiens had cried out, ducking their heads, hiding their eyes. But the humans soothed them, hurried them. Fido kept licking, nuzzling, letting beings rub his fur, carrying podling cradles with his mouth but the handle, moving constantly through the crowd of beings all waiting to get into the elevator. Four hours. Four hours of work. Buxton couldn't believe the apparent size of the Navy medevacs, each able to carry over a hundred of the Neo-Sapiens. The nurses and other medical personnel went with the medivacs, so did some of the ambulance crews. Afterwards, Buxton helped a new human, this one in armor with a red crescent on the one side of their chest and a cross on the other, remove supplies from the ambulances and put it in the back of the overseer security vehicle. The new one, Verita, was differently shaped armor than wine slightly more when he moved. Sergeant and the others kept referring to Verita as Doc. Now that he was helping injured Neo-Sapiens out of the wreckage of a building, the humans were able to move great weights and structural beams and huge chunks of plascrete out of the way. All of the humans' armor made slight whining noises as they cleared the rubble away. The poor boys, Kitty Kitty, had turned out to be small felines that wound around beings, rubbing against them, making a purring rumble, still like a sleeping podling, making soothing noises and speaking in soft, small words. Three were surrounding nearly twenty podlings, all of them with scrapes and bruises that the Kitty Kitties had covered with a fast-drying foam sealant on their mouths. The podlings were no longer crying in fear and pain, but instead were petting and rubbing the kitty kitties, some of them even starting to giggle. The kitty kitty would rub against the face of the injured and wounded beings, their fur left behind a gel rather than hair, the gel rapidly hardening into a protective layer over the wound. The fighters, all three of them, moved through the rubble. Buxton had watched their fur vanish in a ripple, revealing armored chassis. At first, the Fido had massive canine heads with heavy jaws full of gleaming conical teeth. Sergeant had ordered them to reconfigure back into normal search and rescue mode. The fur had been reappeared, and the menacing dangerous heads had been replaced by goofy-looking harmless-appearing canine heads. Buxton marveled at the wonders even as he worked hard. A Fido would bark out of his visor, would translate... The kitty-kitty purr-boys would disappear into the gaps and radio back if they found a survivor. The purr-boy had radioed, Little ones, little ones, lots of little ones! And when Doc had heaved the huge slab of plasticrete away from what must have been a weight tons, it revealed the scene that made Usta stagger away, open her face shield and vomit on the twisted wreckage. Nearly two dozen brood carriers were dead, crushed by the plasticrete, looking out from between the bodies, the podlings were various ages, some barely the size of Wuxton's paw, others big enough to hold half a dozen of the tiny ones in their arms and hold them close. The brood carriers had pushed the podlings under the tables and put their own bodies between the walls and the podlings. 
Doc had rushed over to the brood carrier, kneeling down, his armored fingers sinking into the massive retina's side. Need a stretcher here, Doc called out. Vuxen had been alarmed the first time he saw it. Now he knew that the Doc's fingers were full of surgical tools and that he was trying to save the brood mother's life. Brood mommy said be quiet, quiet, the potling's half-Vuxen size said, tears running out of her eyes. You did good, Vuxen said, kneeling down and stroking the side of her head. She was an immature brood carrier, her large eyes wide with fear. You did real good. Mixie and Donovan ran up, carrying a stretcher. Vuxton helped lead the little podlings down the excavator vehicle, urging them inside. He helped arrange them so that the badly injured brood carrier could be put inside one the stretcher. She opened her eyes and reached to pet some of the smaller podlings, crooning at them. We're full, Lakar yelled. The doors closed. Everyone on, we're going to the evac point, Sergeant called out. Buxton watched from the next heavy laser cannon as the vehicle's van spied up and lifted the vehicle up. It smoothly moved away from the collapsed building that Buxton could see dozens of humans in armor working on. Search and rescue, Buxton thought, looking for people to help. Not Neo-Sapiens, not by our species name, not any ugly words that we were called, but people to the humans. In the middle of a fight to protect the planet, the humans send in beings from the military whose job is to rescue people. It was almost frightening to Vuxen. They moved with such surety, such quickness, throwing themselves completely into the job, holding nothing back, charging into danger. It seemed insane. Buxton resisted the urge to look back at the sky. The entire sky was covered in clouds and looked as if they were burning. His armor visor somehow edited it out, but ash and drops of thick with vaporized metal were falling from the sky, covering everything in a sickly black substance. The sun had risen while he had been helping excavate the hospital, but all it seemed was light the entire sky on fire. There was a rumbling explosions in the distance that vibrated the truck. Buxton didn't look. The last time he had looked, he had seen beams of light striking down from the heavens to blow a massive ship into pieces and then keep shooting the pieces. The executor ride control vehicle was starting to shudder, shake, a screaming coming from one of the fans. The screaming cut out and the vehicle seemed to get sluggish, like it was sliding on its thick syrup. This thing's about had it, Mixie said. Use what we got, Sergeant snapped back, his voice tense. Crowd ahead, Lagos said. By the digital messiah, his voice was full of horror. St. Doss, help us, Doc whispered. Two Fidos out, left and right, Sergeant snapped. Combat configuration. Buxton watched in shock as the fur and goofy-looking head melted away from the Fido, revealing the four-legged heavy-armed frame with that menacing-looking head and a weapon lift from the compartment in its back. It was a triple-barreled and had a line of ammunition linked together by a belt, going from the weapon to what looked like a puddle of liquid metal. Killboy mode! They both growled and jumped off. Buxton wondered why they'd been put into that configuration. Then he heard it. A roaring, screaming, roaring wail, like all the damned souls in the afterlife. No words, no individual voices, just one unpraised howl of hatred and agony. He had never heard anything like it in his entire life. 
It was a noise that made his fur all try to stand on end inside this form-fitting armor. Plotting route, Sergeant yelled, yanking the hovercraft around a corner. As they rounded the corner, Luxton saw them. Overseers. Thousands. Tens of thousands of them. Their clothing blood-covered. Ragged. Torn. Dirty. They blurred into one big mass of weapon-waving arms. Empty eye sockets. A wild, reddened eyes. Bloody jowls. All waning at the top of their lungs as they galloped down the street. Vuxel saw frightened Isakai lunge out of the public transit shelter, only to be grabbed by the overseers and ripped at. Suddenly, dismembered, the torn and shredded body dropped and pounded under the hooves. He would have thrown up before he had even awoken by the armor human in the middle of the night. He would have been sick. Now all he did was turn away. He couldn't help. Nobody could. There is only enough for one. Some of the crowd collapsed. Half of the crowd turned on each other. The rest was still running. The sergeant gunned the engines, the screaming coming back as he reactivated the dying hover fan to put on the speed. The hovercraft howled down the empty streets. Donovan suddenly jumped on, turning midair and landing on top of the armored bay, bringing his rifle out from behind him and holding his arms up. Many, many chasing, Donovan said, his voice eerily calm. The vehicle started to shudder as it went faster. He saw Lacar grab the laser cannon's handles, thumbing the switch to bring it back to life. SAR-17 Delta to SAR Command, over, Buxton heard on his headset, Sergeant's voice. This is SAR Command, over, a new voice said. We got about a million rabbit cows in the street. We're getting hemmed in. Have a load of civilian injured, please advise, Sergeant said. Lethal force authorized. Protect your cargo. SAR command out, came the terse reply. You heard it. Buck and load. Troopers, if you cannot fire, duck down and hold on. This is going to be a butchery, Sergeant said. Troopers, keep the sights clear. Stay in the vehicle for the love of St. Patton. Buxton activated his rifle. He saw on his visor the word updating appear. In two seconds, it went away and his weapon came online. There was a small, semi-transparent window in his upper right showing the rifle was pointing at the ground, showing what the rifle saw. His dogging reticle was at the bottom of his visor. The rifle carried 150 rounds in a magazine he slid in, snapping the bottom as he locked it in. Omni Messiah, protect us! Lacan said softly, lowering the barrel. They've gone mad. There is only enough for one. The scream, echoing in Vuxton's brain, was suddenly countered by another one. Then you will die alone. Lacan said something lost in the twins' screams and hit the trigger on the cannon, aiming it low in front of the hover truck. Donovan, on top of the truck, behind firing his rifle in tight, controlled bursts. Buxton crouched down next to the door panel and had slit up in front of him. He leveled his rifle over the door panel, kneading like he had been taught. He chinned a piece of gum, chewing on it. Contact, Sergeant called out. The Fidos began firing, a solid shafts of light as bullets vanished into the bottom of the duel, side-by-side guns. Links of copper shells flew out from the guns as they moved back and forth in tight little arcs. The laser cannon was firing. The red light burned and eye-watering. 
the sounds of weapons were lost in the wading of the crowd. Captain Veritar to all units, bio, 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 came the call. All units, all units, bio, 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 all units, bio, bio, bio. Oxton felt something shifted his armor, a needle poked his lower back. Over his liver, another one put the back of his neck. The pain vanished before he could do much more than gasp. His ears pop and he felt the air rushing around his nose. NP Khan Online appeared on his visor. Nuclear, biological, chemical, automatic radiation nanite. The vehicle went through an intersection. The Fidos were standing in the road, their guns firing. The overseers were shattered, blowing into rags of flesh ten, fifteen deep as the light of the Fido's double-barreled guns swept the screaming, rampaging crowd. If he was a single wave of tsunami, the crowd still moving forward as if the deaths in front gave them room to run. Buxton leveled his rifle, putting the trigger, shooting a small group by the side of the building that was smashing at the plastocrete. They burst when the weapon hit them. He swallowed thickly. What about our passengers, Doc? Sergeant snapped as if he wasn't driving a hovercraft through a slurry of what was once been part of a crowd. The hovercraft was through the intersection, the Fidos running over the hover truck, the barrels of the guns faint red and smoking. That car stopped firing the laser cannon. Fidos went to positive pressure generation, pure boys are seeding. Doc snapped, uploading biosample genome 1, genome synthing 2 through 8. Donovan started firing again, shooting behind the truck. Without the laser cannon firing, the vehicle picked up speed, Sergeant cutting out so that the web vibration eased up. A sealed, Doc called out, uploading sequence 7. Eight clicks, Sergeant called out. It was a hell of a ride for Buxton. Three more times, the humans used the laser cannon and the Fidos fired their heavy, dual-barreled weapons, and Buxton did something he'd never considered before. Not ever. He pressed the firing stud. An overseer popped like cheap balloons. Leatherneck lion coming up, Sergeant yelled. The hover truck was pouring smoke out from the fans. Buxton saw his weapon go from safe mode as the truck slowed down. The fighters were on board, long alloy tongues hanging out and they made panting noises. The heat was coming off of them like they were whining about slushy as they cooled off. Ports opened and heat sinks to dissipate the heat. Doc kept calling out genome sequence, number, and calling out upload during the time kept moving. The truck moving by the group of humans walking into the city. These humans were massive, towering as tall as a truck in some cases. The other cases smaller and only slightly taller than the door of the hover truck, which was still floating on its air cushion. The big ones had heavy cannons lifted up from their back and smaller ones carrying rifles. They were all jet black, bright green eyes, moving with a purpose. There were some friendly sounding callouts of weird words that Buxton heard. Words like ground powder and army rat and sucket and cleatherneck and jarhead and crayon eater, with lots of friendly waves from the big black humans. Few of them called out hi Fido, and the Fidos barked happily. Finally, the hover truck slowed, almost coming to a stop. Massive robots, maybe humans, waved the truck through and it moved slowly, barely able to stay up on the two smoking fans to stop next to other vehicles. Buxton saw wounded humans and other beings taken out of the vehicles. One human, missing both legs, the ragged bloody stumps extending past the shattered armor. 
He was singing as he was Hobbitrock went and gave the staring vixen a gesture that consisted of a closed fist with the opposable thumb straight up. Figures in the same kind of armor as Doc ran up, opening the back. There was a roar and three of the big black heavy dropships lifted up off the ground. Vuxton looked around. His fellow troopers were kneeling in the open crew bay, heads down, hands in their laps or on the floor, their rifles on their backs. They were all weeping. Vuxton helped carry the podlings on the other wounded in. When he was done, he sought out Sergeant. Uston had curled up, rocking back and forth, holding her legs tight to her chest. A human was knelt down, visor transparent, talking softly. Sergeant, Vuxton asked. As Trooper Vuxton, Sergeant asked. Can you take me somewhere private? I can take my helmet off, Vuxton asked softly. Follow me, there's a tent over there, Sergeant said. Vuxton followed, going through the airlock, the mist pouring down him as he went through. On the other side, it was empty and Sergeant stopped looking at Vuxton. Are you alright, Trooper Vuxton? Sergeant asked. I need a minute. I need to do something, Vuxton said, moving up next to the Sergeant. One second, Trooper, Sergeant said. He took both of Vuxton's weapons and then the vibro knife. Okay, go ahead. You can remove your helmet. Vuxton removed his helmet, stood there for a moment, crying silently, and then threw his head back and screamed. Sergeant knelt down and wrapped his arms around Vuxton as he screamed. It's okay, Trooper. It's okay. Let it out. Get it all out, Sergeant said, holding Vuxton tight. After a minute, Vuxton stopped. Sergeant held him for a second and then slowly let go. Vuxton stood straight up, wiping off his eyes, and then put his helmet back on. Are you ready, Trooper? Sergeant asked. I think so, Vuxton said. My family... The CSFE Mercy jumped out of system three hours ago. Vuxton felt his knees go weak with relief. I am ready. There are other podlings still trapped in the city, he said. That's the spirit trooper, Vuxton, Sergeant said. Confederate Space Force Vessel Mercy Report Arrived in the local Nain system, all sapiens and injured on board survived jump. Due string drive due to necessary for speed. We will be evacuating passengers to TSF Refugee Base Ontario, then we'll be returning for more. Multiple Xeno species have volunteered for service to help care for members of their own species. Attached is a list. Mercy is our strength. Nothing follows. Come, beloved ones, come, podlings, Rentalek said gently, motioning to the brood carriers. She had twenty to look after, and after a hundred podlings, she had half a dozen purboys following her. The podlings loved the little robotic felines, and used more of that amazing hard light to simulate soft fur. They toddled after them, some of the older podlings carrying them. The brood carriers and the podlings followed Brentlet out of the dropship, blinking in the light of the strange sun. The place was in a forest, dense and shelters put in between the trees amongst the ferns. A few of the humans were walking around and Brentlet saw her first human outside of armor. They were massively built, even the females. They moved with a careful grace, looking down in the ferns. One moved over to Brentlick, giving her a close lip up with curve with the mouth that the human equivalent of a smile. Just like Brentlick. It made her feel better. Welcome to RB Ontario. She checked her list. Brentlick, is it? Did I say that right? Better than the overseers, Brentlick said. She made an encompassing gesture. These are the brood carriers and podlings I had been asked to care for. She looked around. Is this forest real? 
The human nodded, another similarity to her people that Printlick appreciated. Yes, it was chosen for your people. Right now, we have all divided all of you up by species to ensure that you get the correct medical care, food, and supplies. The female held out a hand. Brentlick took it gently, rubbing her palms against the human's thickly calloused hands. I am a major Wesco, and I will be your liaison and primary medic provider. I thank you, Brentlick said. The bottlings, the brood carriers, are tired. We have ten set up and similar to burrows for them. We have set up some soft plastic cloth fences to keep the podlings from wandering off. The human major said. She looked down at Brentlick. I'm happy you've chosen to serve your people. Brentlick sighed from one set of overseers to another. The next words made her look up in confusion. You are brave to volunteer for citizenship now. Your people will depend on you and your leadership. I will look for you for guidance and how to help them, Major said. Me? Lead? Brentlick asked. The human nodded. Citizen carries with it a heavy burden. I am thankful you agreed to shoulder it. Your people, your brood carriers, your males and females, your bottlings need someone to speak for them, to tell us what you need. They need you to act as a leader, to help us help you. Brentlick's head swam and her knees buckled. The human quickly knelt, steadying Brentlick with her strong hands. Just all caught up to you, Major asked. Brentlick nodded. I understand. I'm here if you need me. Major looked at the podling standing next to a tree. A kitty kitty held in her arms, a bandage over a missing eye. A smile on her face as the kitty kitty purred. We need to get up. They need us. Brentlick nodded and straightened up herself. I'm pleased to be of help, she said, staring at the podling. The podling, who had lost an ear and an eye to a maddened overseer, shyly waved, her other arm holding a limp but purring kitty kitty. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 58 Buxton The sky looked like it was burning as Buxton sat down on a piece of broken plasticrete. There were bursts of bright white light in the clouds now and then, often with black specks that would fall from the sky. Some of the larger specks often transfixed by beams of light from the sky. Buxton had gotten used to the different types of humans. Marines were big, power armor or warborgs heavily armed and charged into combat, although they would stop to help and rescue people in the search and rescue needed help. Army, which were digging into the create bases and fortifications, used artillery, tanks and air support. Air Force, which supplies a close air support, bombing runs, supply drops, troop transport. Navy, which provides dropships, supply runs, and were fighting in the rear orbits of the planets as well as the rest of the system with the lighter ships. It was all wrapped up in space wars, which had the heavy ships as well as other things that Vuxton didn't quite understand. Vuxton understood more about the military than he had ever wanted to in the last three days. He understood what a close air support meant. He understood what fire for effect meant. He understood what bring the rain was. He also knew what request evac meant. He learned a new thing. Something that he had never wanted to learn. He had been carrying a wounded Isekai female from the wreckage of a large habitat when holes had opened up in the clouds. White cord red beams slicing down from the heavens, slicing into the streets, slicing into the buildings. Buildings had collapsed in both sides of the street, burying the street. 
He had thrown himself on the ground, covering the isekai as the rubble fell around them. Two heavy chunks hit him, and he managed to stay on all fours, staring at the isekai through a clear visor, willing his body to hold out, willing his armor to hold. It had... It had been trapped in the rubble for almost an hour, till the poor boy oozed through the cracks between the rubble. The poor boy rubbed his whiskers on the face of the Aikiki, who slowly relaxed and started to smile and lay between Buxton and Aikiki. Impact mode appeared on his visor as he felt the armor stiffen and joined Slock in place. Buxton relaxed, kind of hanging in the armor. A few minutes later, the sergeant pulled the rubble off of him, grabbing him and pulling him up. He felt the armor come alive again and helped carry the Aikiki to the waiting dropship that had landed while he'd been buried. She had lost her leg, severed by the rubble, but was calm, petting the purboy on her chest and smiling at it. You are right, Trooper Vuxton, Sergeant had asked. I am now, Vuxton said carefully. You let me know if you'll start having problems. You were down there for quite a while, Sergeant said. I wasn't afraid, Vuxton said honestly. Why not? Sergeant asked. He'd been worried about the little guy since parking lot on the Corpsec building. His anxiety had been way too low. I knew that you wouldn't leave me there. Not while I was alive. I knew the poor boy kitty kitties would come looking for me, Buxton said honestly. I was more worried about the Aikiki. Sergeant Uganga nodded. That's right. I'm glad you held on to that. The dropship lifted off, the engine screaming as heavy armored ship took off. The other three humans came over, looking around. What happened with the ambulance? Buxton asked. The armor howled. They rocked their way out of the rubble, Sergeant said. Everyone on it is all right and is on its way to the evac station. That's a combat evac model, Vux, Mixie said. Not the first time something like that has happened to one of them. That's why the frames got built-in integrity screens, like they used in the light torture fighters. Oh, Buxton said. He looked up at the sky. The sun was setting and it was already going dark. He looked at the four humans with him. The others had remained at evacuation station, unable to keep going. Buxton had touched each of them when they had told him, then left. He didn't care what happened to him. His family was safe. That was all that mattered. Devil Dogs were saying there was a whole crap pot of precursors dropping on the planet, Donovan said. Buxton looked at Donovan and shrugged. Just saying, man. He was looking right at Donovan when it happened. The beam of light, bright red and silver one, went straight through the human's head, coring and out the entire helmet. Donovan had stood there for a second, and then the suit just collapsed. Contact! Sergeant yelled, putting the rifle to play. Buxton scrambled to his rifle, but it was gone. He must have lost it when the building had fallen. He reached out and grabbed Donovan's weapon and ran up next to Sergeant. Sinking, visor kept flashing. He could see them, four of them running on the articulated spike legs and slammed into the pavement. Brownish metal, looking rusty and covered in dirt, all blood, patchy in places, with something that Buxton couldn't identify. They screeched as they charged, clicking metal claws and firing heavy lasers on top of mounted cannons. Sergeant aimed his rifle up slightly and fired. Front of the lead one exploded, exposing wiring and pistons the all manner of internal structures. Ready. Buxton aimed at the other ones, not trying to get complicated, and started firing at the one that was still launching forward, the front blown away. 
Instead of a light thwap under his previous rifle, this one fired a thick silvery blue beam. Where it touched the structure, it blew big chunks of metal into vapor and liquid. The first one went down, Mixie and Lacar joined in, a fighter running up in cowboy mode, and five of them kept shooting. The fighter's firepower made the difference. The heavy ramjet ring penetrator slamming through the armor and machinery with equal ease. It was over quickly. Buxton turned around, staggering over to the chunk of plasticrete, sat down and looked in front of him. It was dark already, still raining, and the rain streaking and the staining the plasticrete with everything else as a sticky black. The clouds overhead still glowed red, with fires burning inside. But he didn't have eyes for that. He stared at the ground. Buxton just stared at the human body. It was just limp, the meat on the neck cauterized and smoking. He could see the melted metal and the circuitry in the stump. He just stared. He couldn't believe it had happened. He'd seen an overseer shoot a human in the head with a heavy ion pistol with no effect. But that beam had passed through his head without even stopping. He didn't think it could happen. He sat on the chunk of plasticrete, just staring. Doc struggled up to the top of the pile of rubber. Leaning down next to Donovan, he looked up and shook his head. Brainstem hid. It took out his suds. If they bring him back, he'll be a canner for sure, Doc said softly. Is he dead? Buxton asked. I'm sorry, Bux, but yeah, Doc said, standing up. He didn't think it could happen. Buxton knew he was crying, thick tears that oozed down his furry face. All he could do was stare at Donovan's body. He didn't think that humans could die. You okay, kid? Sergeant asked. Buxton looked up, opened his mouth to say no. A bright flash lit the world, white blinding. Buxton's vision cleared just in time to see it. A rolling cloud of red and black rising from the center of the city. Another flash, and another, and another, and yet another. One final one for good measure. Five 1.2 megaton nuclear blasts surrounding about 12.5 megaton blast in the center. The outer ones detonating in a star pattern around the center, increasing the damage, maximizing the force. The precursors had reached down with atomic hammers to strike the city center. The shockwaves overlapped, increasing the strength by the others, smashed into Buxton, knocking him off the hill of the rubble like a giant had kicked him in the face. He bounced twice, caught air, and slammed through a building, the glass and plasticrete shattering around him. He bounced off something hard, fell, and smashed into the street. His armor pulled his limbs into a T-like pose. Brentelek sat in the forest clearing, on a comfortable chair looking at the brood carriers around her. Many of them had wounded humans in their arms, stroking them gently, nuzzling them, crooning to them. The humans had been wounded on the same planet her husband still fought to protect, brought to the hospital ship, and sometimes, when the wounded were severe enough, brought here. Brentelek had seen how much the brood carriers liked humans. Humans were warm. Humans smelled nice. Humans loved. Love human, good human, safe human. A brood carrier crooned her song to a human. He had no injuries that were apparent, but he moved slowly, stiffly. His skin was pale, and he was bald. He stuttered when he talked and had problems remembering, and cried often, putting his face in his hands and weeping while the brood carrier would try and soothe him. He was sleeping, held gently by a brood carrier, who covered his chest protectively with a fluffy tail. His name 
was Donovan. He had been shot through the head by a precursor and it had damaged something that made it so that he was traumatized even after the Confederacy had somehow saved him. Major pinged her data link. Please come in, Brendel said over her stool and slightly tender data link. The leaves rustled behind her as she watched the brood carrier pet the human who was laying on her lap. The human had been injured by radiation that had attacked his DNA, making regeneration of his limbs a long and painful affair as his cells had to be cleaned. The human came to the brood carriers to be held after each gene therapy session. The brood carriers sang to him and stroked him until he went to sleep. Rentlick had learned humans healed in the most when they slept. Rentlick, I need you to brace yourself, Major said. Rentlick swallowed, wondering what it was. Another badly wounded human, a potling that had been saved against all odds. A weeping brood carrier, heavy with eggs and clutching orphan potlings. It was fur, crusted with blood of its mates. The last one weighed heavy on her shoulder. Citizenship is a heavy burden. I'm ready, Brentlick said, slowly turning around. At first, she could not believe it. She blinked, staring, and rubbed her eyes, then rubbed her eyes again, still not believing what she was seeing. Vuxton stood there next to the Major. He looked awful. The fur around his eyes and jaw was silver. One eye was cybernetic. His leg was in a traction brace to keep the bone straight and still. He was missing an ear. He looked terrible. He looked wonderful. She flew off the mossy rock she always sat on, running to him. She grabbed him in her arms, sure that this time, like all the others, that she would wake up in empty arms. Instead, arms were around her, squeezing her, one arm weaker than the other. I am home, my love, Buxton said, his voice rough, raspy, but still his. I am home, and I will never let you go. V-Core, old metal, system cleared of precursor threat, request relief and rotation. Nothing follows. Terran Confederacy Citizenship Agency. The attached names, numbers, and genetic codes are all new citizens with full rights, responsibilities, and privileges thereof. Search. Vuxton 68934-6221-527194. One record found. Full citizen, Terran Confederacy. Search, Rendelik, 8271492356156132. One record found, full citizenship, Terran Confederacy. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds, we welcome our Talcum brothers to the fold. Our dreamers and prophet singers, our seers welcome you. Freedom, horrible, horrible freedom awaits. May you find its nectar sweet. End of chapter. First Contact, Part 59, Cock. Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8532.4. We've been out in the Dead Zone Fringe for the past two months, examining the old precursor world that was unsurveyed. Nothing of interest to report. My Spock was disappointed that a hundred and change million year old set of ruins had been largely devastated by time on a largely dead world. Examination showed that the world was subject to massive amount of orbital strikes, glassing, oceans boiled away, and massive atmospheric loss. My Ahura had been, well, less than stellar, 
I think she did a lot of door sitting to rack up the rankings since she missed an urgent communication from Starfleet that we haven't been able to get back. Going to have to replace her. Not to mention, she is using the Yahura look by wearing the Discovery uniform. That's not okay. Going to head back to Deep Space Nine Station and see what's going on. The transmission was seriously encoded and pulsed directly to us. I'll turn in our survey results and see if we can get a Type 3 warp engines. The Type 2s are good, but my Scotty has told me that it is picking up a lot of harmonics from Cypher Space, like a rumble that keeps coming. Long patrols, almost three years, and most exciting thing that we've had was a talk with a Borg cube that was heading back to the edge of the zone. Their cloning banks and sud stacks had got blown out so they didn't want to risk anything and mark themselves as no PvP. We did provide them assistance to them due to their status as neutral vessel and Nana forged them a new creation engine. They were cagey as to what they ran into and could not be damaged by a BB class ball cube that bad. Cock 8873. Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.14. I don't know what that was in warp space, what, whatever it was, it knocked us clear out of warp and blew out the port in a cell. That rambling and hyperspace is still going, every few hours, the rumble lasting for an hour or so. It's bad enough that I had to order the holodeck shut down due to the harmonics. Ayahura really screwed the Orion girl, I told her to keep an ear out for any unusual traffic. And what does she do? Roots the priority message from Starfleet with all of the All Fleet's header to her personal comm device. The encryption bricked her comm device and the message. Later, she punted another message that came in with All Guild's header while she was taking a break and listed it as idle over to our Spock's terminal. And bricked half of the science lab including our Type 3 nanoforge. I'll be filing a formal complaint against her and demanding a point review. My Spock thinks that there's something going on, something we missed by Ahuhura's incompetence, and he's pretty upset. About a step from pitching her out of the airlock. I've never seen Spock so mad in his ears twitch. She keeps forgetting that this isn't an EVR run and keeps walking around with an idol over her head. No matter, Scotty told me it'll only be a few more days until we warp drive. Cock 8873 Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.38. Well, we've got power back. I had to put Ahura into the brig to guarantee her safety. She had fired up the holodeck, overriding the lockout code, and was running a next-gen Mary Sue sim. In the middle of one of those rumbles, she forwarded a message marked confed.mull to engineering. That pricked everything. Our nanoforge and warp core, everything... Had a data down there, new guy and playing a data, literally melted his brain. I mean, positronic alloy running out of his ears, eyes and nose and mouth. That interacted with the rumble of the holodeck generation field. It gutted the ship, destroyed the respawn pods and Spock and Scotty think that it may have blown out our suds auto update. We've been using the shuttles to stay on atmosphere while we got the warp core back up. We haven't yet, but we've got the life support back. It's been nice to eat a real meal and not the shuttle's emergency stalls. Scotty's estimate is about when you let me bash that witch's head in, or when we can get the warp core and engines back up. Cock 8873. Captain's log, stardate 8532.52. We've got the warp core back up, the suds can't update, meaning that if anyone gets killed, they're stuck in the backup of four, four weeks. 
Crew members are livid, plus the respawn pods are screwed. We tried regenerating the data and uh, it wasn't good. His screams haunt my dreams. Now we just need to fix the nacelles. The computer started having problems again. Damn, I'm tired. I might step back from Kark rank for a couple years. This mission is being bad. Kark 8873 Captain's personal log, star date 8532.85. If I didn't know better, I'd swear Uhura was a Romulan spy. We found out, finally, where the computer instability was coming from. She had cracked the templates in the ship's communications database. Some of them had a nasty, and I mean nasty, very in them. That's what's been hashing our computers. So our Hura doesn't know jack about me space LARP, and apparently just dull sat on EVR stuff. She loaded the computer of my ship with cracked templates full of Viri, and she bricked half of our crap. On the plus side, it looks like we'll have warp 1 capability in a few days. Oh, and our rescue beacons? Uh, bricked. Cock 8873. Captain's personal log, star date 8532.141. Holy shatner, where do I begin? First, the port nacelle went down again. We were still sitting in between two planets when the whole Gorn fleet dropped on us. We were not talking one of the little ones. I think it was every Gorn ship out there, full of lizard dudes. We're even talking uh, taking a couple of other species-only ships where everyone on the ship was born a Syrian. We figured that we were screwed since they immediately opened the such channel to get the compressed backup of everyone. You only do that when you're about to have a major fleet engagement. Then the fleet big rock thrower himself comes me, not on my Starfleet com, but my personal com, tells me he'll send a shuttle right now, told me that I could bring my Spock, McCoy and Scotty. What we heard, we didn't believe. Full template unlocks, we're not talking about some hope of luring back old players, we're talking about, you want it, it's yours template unlocks. Apparently, some group of Xeno species out past the dead zone woke up an entire precursor fleet, getting the crap tashiard out of them, also the Senfed told everyone to grab their crap and go and help. Showed me on the message my Uhura balked, it was an emergency update for the Type 2C's warp engines, that rumble we were getting from hyperspace, that's the low bands of overpressured. You know those bands, they're slow ones and they're mainly used by colony ships and long-haul truckers. Yeah, so much metal has started to move that it's causing hyperspace reverberation into jump space and warp space. I had Scotty run how much metal that might be and he told me that the math comes up to moving than gigatons of metal. He said that you could probably see the bulge from the hyperspace and subspace. The Gorn helped us repair and update our warp engines. He said that he couldn't tell me much more. I didn't have the right security header, so he couldn't be sure that I was actually cock ranked. Oh, and because the doofy moron put cracked templates on my computer, he had to register me as a possible pirate vessel. I should airlock that moron. Cock8873 Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.159. We made it to the nearest Deep Space Nine station and, uh, well, free repairs on my ship, free templates across your ranking and below, all qualified persons. Looks like all my time jumping around classes paid off because template restrictions are being lifted. 
Kota has been fitted out with Type 7 engines. New warp cores, new sides rack, new respawn pods, Type 6 nanoforge, Type 14 creation engine, new replicators, new transportation system, shielded and encrypted man trans beams. Using the sides rack and error checking, still comes with a neural degradation warning, but hey, them's the risks of the game. Our Hura problem was solved. Turns out that she was an account sharer. Got my name cleared from the cracked templates. Turned out that she was actually running those templates to a ship that never showed up. Anyway, turns out that if the full-blown precursor attack across a bunch of sentient systems on the other side of the dead zone, we're not talking a little one. We're talking full fleets of the things. I'm trying to decide if I want the Dakota reconfigured for battle or not. I'd planned on taking a break for a couple decades after the Borg War came back in 8527, when Starfleet had got stomped so bad. Because my Battle.net rating is so high, I've even been offered the chance to come back to StarCraft or even Red Alert, or the 40k RTS for multiplayer v precursor maps. My Spock isn't up to it. He took me up on my LFG because I was supposed to be doing science-only missions and this last mission really blew out his nerves. I feel for the guy, he's a good player, but his nerves have been shot since he had a bad Voyager run with a really bad captain. The Death Armada scandal a few years back really soured a lot of players. I'll probably go ahead and see who wants to drop and run the NLFG call. Clark8873 Captain's personal log, Stardate 8532.159 The Dakota's been reconfigured for old Trek ship classes since you're allowed to do cross seasons at this time. Loaded up with the good stuff, but used an old Trek Super Dreadnought class that's illegal in any other seasons. The LFG went good, a bunch of restrictions have been lifted, so I've got some weird crew members, but they're all high ranking. My Spock is a fox girl out of the bass, and she's got a solid ranking and actually has a few IRL science creds. My America class super dreadnought allows me for a gunnery and security positions, so I took a few heavy hitters. Even got a Riker to join us. He's a former captain, so if anything happens to me, my crew and ship are in good hands. We'll do a shakedown cruise on the way to the new systems as soon as everyone gets their mandatory SUDS deep scan done for the main stack back on Luna. Cock8873 Captain's personal log stardate 8532.211 Arrived in new system. It's a wreck. According to my Sulu, Leslie's are not ranked for this. The systems we came into was a uh, allied space, but within 30 minutes before we could even get the light speed sensor returns, we had precursors on us. It's easy. Looking at the heavy shielding and everything, we play with and figure nothing can really hurt us. I mean, we tussle with the Borg players. Sometimes might even fight with the 40k guys, but this, this was bad. We don't have the NCV rounds, and it only takes a half a dozen or so hits from those to completely drop your shields. We warped out, came out in a different system, and sure as Janeway, those things jumped us again. Different ship types, but lean and efficient. One on one, hell, twenty on one, I could probably take their light attack craft, but when they swarm you by the thousands on one or more, well, you GTFO. Your crew and your ship are more important than putting into the darkness. My Klanons have to wear psychic dampeners that scream those precursors to drive them into a Klanon battle frenzy. Ran a nanoforge pretty hard building psychic shields for Dakota. It was worth it. Our third system, we got hit, but we were ready. 
I ran up some kinetic shields and turned them over to my Spock, and she managed to reconfigure them to take NCV hits. My new Uhura was amazing. She managed to isolate the battle chatter well enough that we figured out where the big daddy was. We went in cocky, and wow, my crew is glad that I'm not a point hound. That ship was big. We're talking thousands of miles across and 300 miles thick. We're talking armor miles thick, main gun batteries, not by the dozens, but by the dozens of miles. It started shedding huge amounts of parasite torture fighters. We fired photon torpedoes and GTFO'd. We're sitting in dead system now, no life on the planets in the screen zone, and there's still a lava on that bottom of the craters, the canyons. The precursors messed this place up. Cock 8873 Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.232. Had to have a major discussion with the crew. Confed is offering military-grade weapons to us, qualified LARPers. Apparently, surviving those three system sensor sweeps impressed some of the military guys. They looked over our records and complimented me on knowing when to run. Turns out my Riker held the Reserve Space Force Commission from about 200 years ago. That means he can put us in some serious weapons. I can't believe that the Doki girls and the Kawaii Orcs got thumped so bad. It's a madhouse here. The crew decided that they want to keep going. Everyone knows one or two mat trances won't blow you out. If you aren't sudsed up, you just gotta watch it a bit. Had some of the Neo-Sapient and Uncivilized Neo-Species tested for us. A major neurological defunctions. I've got an America class, which means I've got the big transport bays. We're talking, drop the entire battalion of red shirts onto the planet and once each bay. I've got six bays. That means I can also recover as many. It's galling to find out that these precursors hit so hard. I was all dreaming of rolling up on them and hand phasing proton torpedoes out crap out of them. Instead, they hit back and they hit back hard. But the Dakota is tough enough to take a beating. Guild excuses my non-canon modifications to the Dakota, since we lost a couple good captains out there already. The Confed guys want us to pull refugee evacuations because we can't fight back, take a beating, and bring up refugees. Plus, I've got the life support and medical sections to handle it all. The crew wants to do it. My Spock said that since everyone else is rushing to engage in combat, we need to uphold the true nature of the Federation and save people. She gave me an impassioned speech, joined by our Uhura, about the real message of the Federation and Confed isn't, we're tough, rawr, but rather, we bring hope, that everyone forgets and that we win the excitement of space battle. She reminded me that everyone, while we've got our suds, then don't think about mortality. These people on the planets do not. They only have one life, no respawn. Uhura asked us how we'd act if we didn't have suds or respawns, how precious our one life would be. It was almost unanimous. The Dakota is going to be running rescue operations. It's what's right, dammit. I'm respecting. Cock 8873. Cock's personal log, date 8532.238. Entered the system, broadcasting a distress beacon, and encountered three Goliath-class precursor machines attacking the system while Confed forces counterattacked. Proceeded to integrate with Confed forces and began rescue operations. 
The Dakota is well served in such a role as the multi-purpose early Starfleet Super Dreadnought with extensive life-supported security, as well as over-redundant life support, we should be able to affect the rescue of many beings who might have otherwise been lost. Crew confidence is high. Picard 8873 End of chapter First Contact Chapter 60 Cock Picard Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.272. I've seen a couple of Space Force fleet actions, two in real time, in real life, and I've never seen this much scattered metal around a system. It isn't that the precursors are more powerful. Some of their tech is laughably ancient. It's just that there's so many of them, but the big ones are just so tough. Just because it's ancient doesn't mean that it's useless. Throwing a rock is ancient, yet is not a C-plus cannon just throwing a large rock at really high speeds. It's because common knowledge that boarding parties are the way to go when it comes to Goliaths and the new ones that have showed up, the Kaiju class. It's either try pound something the size of a subcontinent into the dirt, or board them and blow the strategic intelligence housing. Space Force has tried to take a few alive, but they always have charges to blow out the AI core. Sometimes they are completely suicide and your casualties include the entire boarding force as well as any nearby vessels. Contrary to suggestions, you can't just disable the engines and let it drift into the sun, because each of the battle wagon class or higher will control the smaller ones and seek to rebuild the engines and get it running again. Saw a Jotun settle on the wreck of a Goliath and Space Force had pounded until you could see through it and jump into hull space with it despite disabled engines and an estimate destroyed hull core. Apparently, there's negotiations with the rulers of the Eye of Terror system to let them call for a new Black Crusade since they are the masters of hellscape in the Confederacy. Some people aren't too sure about it, since the last time these guys went full on Black Crusade was after the Mantids glassed Terrasol, and while I feel nervousness about such a prospect, these may be truly bordering on desperate times. Some guys named Gulkek, who the Terran Navy saved back when I was still checking out the Precursor world, are allowing Starfleet to put shipyards and full starbases in their system. The race is eagerly petitioning to be allowed to join Starfleet and the Federation as members of the Confederacy. One of the things that us Federation LARPers dislike about the Confederacy is there is no prime directive. We're not supposed to interfere with unprogressed Xenospecies, but the Confederacy has no such restrictions and disrupt those Xenospecies' natural progression. We've had to set aside our knee-jerk dislike for the Confederacy offering citizenship or freeing worlds that the Terran Navy or Space Force defends. There's a whole, are these species ready for it questions that comes into the Prime Directive. It's one of the reasons we're all an ally organization but are not full members of the Confederacy, despite our members having the ability to become Confederate citizenry. But what we've seen, I mean, the things we've seen... My crew and I shall never forget. Some of the crew doesn't like that I'm gun-running in their eyes, running a nanoforge to arm some of these species, but my red shirts all agree with it. Even my Spock agrees with it. There's genocide going on out there. That word, it doesn't really describe what's going on out there. Extermination is closer, but still it lacks the sheer scale of what is happening. We've been out here for only little over than a month. I think it's getting to my crew. 
I might have to do another LFG. Picard 8873. Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.279. Five days, that's all it's been. Five days. It feels like forever. McCoy put me under. I was standing in the ready room, screaming at the crew that wasn't there. I slept for two days straight. We stopped them. I ran the cloning tanks to respawn pods dry, ran the nanoforge and the creation engines to slush, dropping red shirts and kaiju until the boarding party finally got to the strategic intelligence housing and blew it up with a proton torpedo head that had been packed the whole way. You can't use transporters. That should have been obvious, and I wasted the first two launches of red shirts. The transporter uses a digital signature to move and then recreate a being. Of course, the precursors would have digital signal noise removers and capture cards. After we killed the brain, we sought out where the kaiju was storing the signals of our red search. I was glad we did. Imagine being stuck in a buffer forever where someone keeps loading you into a sadistic Cardassian torture chamber to rip apart you and examine you, with your memories being updated in the buffer while you're being tortured. Meanwhile, your suds won't go off because you're only stuck in a buffer. Still, five days we managed to sweep the system. We kept the kaiju from making any planetary landings or attacks. I shot a proton torpedo nanoforges into slush, even used the transbasic torpedoes during the fight. I had possessed doubt about allowing weapons powerful enough to scrap Borg cubes, which are prohibited from most ladder rank fights, from being used in IRL zones. The precursor kaiju would not have hesitated. I reconfigured all shuttles into assault shuttles. 19th Guard Old Metal came thundering into the system with a hyperspace rumble that you could feel in your chest. It's an astonishing sight to see all the metal exit hyperspace a division at a time, already cleared for action at the red alert, hearing space roar with the old Soviet anthem till the stellar body stellar wind chimes in the something is not that many experience. We'll be granting a new crew eight days of leave in the 19th Guard recreation ship in rotations. I expect it to be back in action in 14 days. On a personal note, I wonder if there are any cat girls that will be aboard the recreation ship that might be looking for a yiffing. Picard 8873 Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.279 Some of my fellow Federation Starfleet officers questioned my decision to go with an old track class vessel. The new ones all look impressive. Where old track is designed very sturdily, if you are being polite. Some of the new track stuff can look good because of the how integrity feels hold up the ship together, during evasive maneuvers as well as during combat. When non-cannon designs are ready being approved, I added the Enterprise class hull integrity fields to the Dakota as backup and used the new track alloys and structural designers for additional strength. Yes, the Dakota would be completely rebuilt by cannon again, but I made the right decision despite the mocking of my peers. I outmass my fellow America-class super dreadnoughts by a factor of three. Using the more modern Abrams-era warp drives that are only partial cannon, I am able to offset the mass to acceleration issues. I can mount heavier weapons and more of them and, on the advice of my Riker, who was a Space Force Commodore before he retired, I installed nearly four times the point defense. While the Dakota may look like a floating Erector set had sex with a Lego set to some other captains, I have faith in my crew's suggestions. 
With that, I am ordering the Dakota to answer the distress beacon in a nearby system. Picard 8873 Captain's personal log, Stardate 8532.283. Have rendezvoused with two Klanon and three Romulan battle groups, several Constitution class and a new Gen Galaxy class, which I outweigh by a factor of six, are with these guys' groups. We plan to jump to the outer system, keeping a gas giant between us and the rest of the system. Some of my fellow Federation officers doubt that the Dakota meets Starfleet appearance rules by the Klanons were very appreciative of it. These are not regrown Klanons, but rather natural-born from Klanon itself. Romulus' class mining vessel is with us. Having seen these in action, Confederate is high amongst my allies. It is these first engagement against the Precursors. My Spock and I have tried to convince them about the dangers, but they refuse to believe it. They are convinced that they will overpower a hundred million year old technology like the Precursors are using. I attempted to convince them to use transphasic torpedoes and ship phaser technology, but they refused, as it is only semi-cannon. Picard 8873 Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8532.286 We jumped to beside the large gas giant on the outer system, quickly raising shields and launching probes to get a look at the system. There are five settled planets in the Green Zone and the Amber Zone, two of them already under ground attack. We were still discussing countermeasures for the ground attacks when everything came apart, so to speak. Three Goliath-class precursor vessels rose out of the gas giant and immediately brought us to action. My Riker immediately ordered a photon torpedo base to be loaded with transphasic warheads and rolled us away from the precursor, firing our heavy phasers. The new-gen Galaxy class took a full barrage of NCV cannons from the entire forward batteries of the single Goliath and broke up. They had only been using debris shields and had not believed that the precursor ships mounted batteries 10 kilometers thick and 100 kilometers long. Literally thousands of guns. The Romulan ships went to stealth. Their plan to go after the engines. Klanons, of course, closed the distance, intending on performing a strafing runs. All three Goliaths were disabled and sunk into the gas giant streaming vast strands of vaporized metal. With that, our patchwork armada made its way in system, registering four more Goliath-class vessels, including one that was landed on a dead planet with no ocean or atmosphere. The Romulus-class mining vessel moved to attack that one with the idea that it was a dead ship without shields, as it had suffered severe damage to its armor. They said the best laid plans are laughed at by God, and that is how it quickly went. The planet-bound Goliath opened fire with its guns at extremely close range. The mining vessel was disabled within ten minutes. Falling into the gravity well, its attempt to use the mining lasers came to no effect. The other Romulan vessels kept going for the engines on the other machines. Once, we became engaged in close to five more Goliath class raised up from the smaller gas giants. The battle was fierce, as was this writing that I'm not even aware of any vessels still in action. We are currently using our superior speed to keep the precursors from the planets while our nanoforges are creation engines de-slush. Picard 8873 Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.296 The crew of the Dakota has performed above all expectations in the defense of System 8871-D2. 
despite the losses of our allied vessels, despite the unexpected recovery of three initially engaged Goliaths, we have prevailed. The system has been cleared of the precursor threat both in system space and on planet's surface. An important piece of data is that it appears that the precursors have decided that they have to survive to enjoy the resources, so any expenditure of resources necessary for a quick victory is a logical outcome. Forced precursor vessels to retreat from system to conserve resources. The precursor vessels should take time to repair before returning. My Spock concurs. We are currently returning to Starbase 4973 and the Gulkak system for refit, repair, and rearming. We will suggest stationing a garrison forces at System 8871-D2. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.